Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Boogie Nights, starring Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Heather Graham, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. God bless Heather Graham. God bless this whole cast. Yeah. And someone we're going to talk about later, Matt, Alfred Molina, mm-hmm. maybe stealing this whole movie for me, but we'll get to him later. I have a funny story about him in this film that I want to tell you, too. <laughs> Excellent. I can't wait. But welcome back to Rise Smile Films. It's time to start a new film review cast, get out of the science fiction realm in Godzilla. We had a lot of fun with that, but we're going to get a little more cerebral and do a filmmaker. I love these directors' casts. We've done a, a few of them, Friedkin, Hitchcock, uh, and there's one other one I think we're forgetting. I just like just getting in the weeds with the director and looking at uh, some pieces of his filmography. And Paul Thomas Anderson, this is going to be an interesting conversation. We're kind of covering some of his well-regarded films, but he's a filmmaker that in the last couple of years has kind of dropped off a little bit for me. I think probably from The Master, mm-hmm. Inherent Vice, Phantom Thread was interesting, but not like what some of these other ones are. So... I wonder kind of like where the drop-off is, but talk about your second film, like totally knocking out of the park. That's Boogie Nights today from 1997. This stuff leans on the side of Cerebral, and with The Master, he tackled a fairly controversial subject, Scientology, and there's some pieces in there that I think we can all find interesting. Cyclos? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. We've seen the action version of that and even covered it on the show once upon a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a very stark departure at that film because... You know, we've talked about it. I never finished it. It mm-hmm. was so slow. Oh, it's really long, too. Uh, I was a well acted. I mean, uh, but like just like material wise, it just didn't leave an, a lot to be desired uh, from that particular film. And then Inherent Vice. You're the one that told me like I wanted to see that. And you said, don't even waste your time. And I haven't even ventured into that. Well, it's based on a novel by Thomas Pinchon, which he's a postmodern writer. And I, I dabbled into some of his works in college and they're really hard to follow. So yeah. the film is just like that. So that was part of the problem. But then it just wasn't interesting either at the same time. Like it looked like a detective kind of yeah, comedic I, yarn and it just did not deliver in that regard. It did. It presented itself as a comedy noir, mm-hmm. neo-comedy noir. And then the Phantom Thread, 20 minutes and that got shut off. I wasn't mm-hmm. doing it. Yeah. I could. I barely care about threadsmanship and mm-hmm. tailoring and the way that was presented with the long in, long out, close on, the final vehicle for Daniel Day-Lewis before he hangs it up supposedly yeah, that's three misses in a row. But this one, Phantom Thread got a little different story. Got pretty good towards the end. Uh, it got a little Hitchcocky towards the end. But like again, it's like a two and a half hour movie. Like it's like a long gestation to get to that moment. Well, on the way to those, we've got some good stuff to talk about for yeah. the next three weeks. I think I'm excited. I'm excited today. We're opening up a new bottle. This is the Russell Reserve uh, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. This is the ten year age. Matt, the last time we had Russell's Reserve, I think it was the Russell's Reserve Rye. And it was our film noir cask uh, of uh, Basic Instinct and Double Indemnity and Serenity. Oh, that's got to be in the first 15 films we ever covered. So it was the very second cast after Unbreakable. The gun and the girl. Excellent. So uh, return to uh, uh, one from the past. Mm. I get a lot of vanilla right there at the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
And then you know what I get on the back end is a little bit of leather. Leather, yeah, oaky. Not pancake batter, though. <laughs> pancake batter. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, perfect, perfect timing. Let's get started with our flight question. Great soundtrack in this movie. Oh, yeah. the soundtrack's amazing. And it caters to one of my guilty pleasures uh, is just disco music. Like that 70s era music, it just rocks. I'm not guilty about that. That's I'm all about that pleasure. Well, I hate Night Ranger and I hate Sister Christian. Do you really? But I love its use in this movie. That's so funny. You know why? Huh? We've never talked about that. Okay. When that song was really popular in 1982. Yeah. Everyone loved it, yeah. and I hated Night Ranger too. Uh-huh. Hated. I yeah. thought that song was stupid. Yeah, really stupid. I hated the video. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I'm with you. They suck. Motorbrand. Yeah, Ugh. but it's the way. And we'll get to this scene because it's just masterful filmmaking and editing and sound design. That the use of the song in that scene is perfect. That song has a special place in the annals of songs I never want to hear again, and it's right next in that library to. I can feel it in the air tonight by Genesis. Oh wow! <laughs> do 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 do. Oh, hard pass. Change the channel. Oh, excellent. Well, as we've established, a hell of a cast in this film. We're going to talk about a lot of these actors and a lot of these characters and kind of what they bring to the table. But the guy in our lead role, we've talked about him once before in a not so favorable manner, and that was the happening. Mm-hmm. It's Mr. Mark Wahlberg. And we decided to do kind of a little flight in our top three favorite roles of Mr. Mark Wahlberg. So I tried to kind of think of this a little bit differently, not like what his best roles are, because that would lead me toward The Departed, which I'm not a big fan of that movie. But Ditto. Uh, it was like the first three roles that come to mind when I think of Mark Wahlberg. So a lot of this harkens back to my childhood and then just like my later years. So Well, then I bet you and I are going to have the same one in the top three because there's a young one for me too. Should uh, we just get that one out of the way right away? Oh, uh, Does it have a four-letter title yeah, to begin let's, with? Yeah, let's go in order. Let's do, let's right. do three first. Uh, number three for me. Okay. Mr. Jim Bennett in a remake of The Gambler. Mm. That's a real dark character and a fairly character-driven, not a lot of action movie, but a guy that is addicted and will go at no lengths to dispose of those people who get in his way of gambling. Masterfully underplayed. Mm -hmm. And Mark Wahlberg at this point, by the time this film came out, was such a say hello to your mother kind of character of himself, (laughs) right? I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) That for him to be understated and underplayed and almost forgotten, but not in a bad way. In this film is important. So let me give you one quick example on what I mean by that. Okay. A well-refed game in the NHL or in the NBA mm-hmm. is one where you didn't know the refs were there. Yeah. Because they didn't make an impact on the film. Nope. Yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. Or the game, sorry. Too much of that in a movie <laughs> makes it forgettable. Mm-hmm. But in a same general idea, I think that his understated role, which suits that character, sort of clandestine and a little bit keep your cards close to your vest behind his heavy shades and that accent and that coat, worked really, really well in that film. Plus, I love gambling movies. I think they're very, very interesting. We've kicked around the idea of doing a cask on that at some mm-hmm. point it's coming. So that's number three for me, Mr. Jim Bennett and The Gambler. Good choice. Thanks. Number three for me, uh, I wonder if this is going to show up on your list, but it's uh, Mickey Ward from The Fighter. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I really like the fighter. You know, that David O. Russell's uh, film when he's not, you know, throwing shit at Lily Tom. <laughs> mm-hmm. I feel like he can make a pretty good movie from time to time. And I'm very much looking forward to his next one, which is like a Prohibition era gangster film with Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, like really good cast. So we'll, excellent. We'll have to come back to that one. Uh, Arguably, I think the MVP of the fighter probably is Christian Bale as his, as his brother. But I, I, you, Matt, we're in the same camp. We love a good boxing movie. I think that one delivers in a lot of different areas. It's a really interesting family dynamic that they have there. You know, with Melissa Leo, Leo's character, and then Amy Adams is always amazing as well. So that's number three for me. Good choice. Mm-hmm. Number two, really young Mark Wahlberg mm-hmm. in a role we don't often see him take on. That's villain. This is fear. And that character's name in that film is David McCall. So when you come out of Good Vibrations Mm -hmm. with Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch and then go to billboards for Calvin Klein and Times Square and then show up as this young, up-and-coming, pretty good-looking, pretty nice body and then play that as exactly the opposite that Hollywood liked to cast him Mm -hmm. (laughs) because not a villain. This is leading man stuff. In a movie that's pretty terrifying to its own degree. Mm-hmm. William Peterson plays a good role. That's really young. Um, Reese Witherspoon. There you go. Reese Witherspoon. Melissa Milano. And um, I can never remember that. Andy, not Andy McDowell. Um, I'll look it up in a minute. That plays the stepmom. Mm-hmm. Great film. I love fear. It's going to come up a little bit later on my list. I'll, I'll do my best uh, impression of David from a scene in that film when, when it comes time to do it. But good choice. Yeah, thanks. Let's hear your number two. My number two. Oh gosh, I gotta I gotta look up the the character's name, but uh, this is Bobby Stratford. The film is The Perfect Storm. So Matt, this kind of harkens back to like my days of you know those summer days when you would like go to like the movies on like a Sunday afternoon with the family. It's like summer blockbuster season. And The Perfect Storm was like one of those movies like we went as like a family to go see and just like really liked it. I mean, it's a film obviously trying to capitalize off of like Titanic and mm-hmm. those disaster-esque films. But equally just as important a movie for George Clooney who had just had the debacle that was Batman and Robin. So mm-hmm. he kind of needed a star vehicle to kind of like make that happen. But he's playing Boston and he's from Boston, so it works. It makes sense. I mean, he's likable in it. But... It reminds me, it just reminds me, I love that movie so much. And, you know, it's it's not amazing uh, just, you know, from you know production standpoint. John C. Riley's in that movie too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it reminds me of just those days of you just going to the movies and this. You know what I used to do, Matt, was, you know, we got internet kind of pretty late in my household. So my favorite thing to do, this is so geeky, was on Friday morning, I would call like the movie like the movie theater i don't think it was movie phone it wasn't it wasn't fandango i was like straight up calling the movie theaters and they would list off the times of like when the movies were playing and i would like plan out the weekend for the family yep because they wouldn't do that like i was the instigator of like what movies we would go see and stuff wow and it was like my favorite thing was to hear the runtime because i kind of knew what we were in for i've never been more disappointed than when i called for jurassic park three and it said Jurassic Park 3 with a runtime of one hour and 29 minutes. I was like, why is that movie so short? Trouble. <laughs> Portends to not a great viewing experience. But then it was also good when it said The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, runtime of three hours and 12 minutes. I was like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> we're in it for in it to win it this week. <laughs> so Perfect Storm, Bobby, I, I like The Perfect Storm. Great choice. Thank you. 
Uh, so number one for me makes a return on the list to one that you mentioned. It is the same character you chose. That's Irish Mickey Ward and the fighter. Mm-hmm. I grew up watching those fights. I loved them in real time. Those are three epic battles between him and Arturo Gatti. The 30 for 30 or documentary that they have on the two and the friendship that they formed afterwards is amazing. Mm-hmm. Christian Bale's really good in that. There's not a bad performance, mm-hmm. but it's hard to do boxing because there's a lot of choreography that goes into it. Mm-hmm. And most of those guys generally have a rather seedy background. So to take that and be talented and muscular enough to move properly and then play out the seedy nature of the character in kind of a dysfunctional family, Christian mm-hmm. Bale specifically in that film, like mm-hmm. strung out looking Christian Bale, mm-hmm. but still find him likable is really great. Good choice. Irish Mickey Ward was a terrific fighter. That's probably before your time, but if you ever mm-hmm. get a chance to go back and check out those fights, they are worth your time, dude. Well, I've seen the 30 for 30 you're, you're it's great. mentioning. Yeah. Speaks at his funeral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It was a really, I was really surprised by the, by, by the film. And, you know, like uh, David Rus- o. Russell's prior entries had kind of left me like, eh, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. But like that one, like, and it, it may, might be because I do enjoy a good boxing movie, whether it's Rocky, Raging Bull, Ali, like I always really like a good boxing film. What's the Jake Gyllenhaal one called? Oh, uh, Southpaw. There you go. That yep. one's good too. Yep. Great choices. Excellent. Number one so for mine. One. You already mentioned it. Yeah. It's fear. I, I love fear, Matt. It's like yeah. such a great, like sociopathic thriller. He's insane. That scene on the roller coaster is pretty wild. I was just going to say the scene on the ro- roller coaster to wild horse. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then as I promised, my favorite part is when he comes to the house at the end and she's like, dad, David knows the code and he's like punching it in and he's about to like get in the house and William Peterson shuts the door in time and he looks through the people and he goes, this all could have been different, Mr. Waka. You should have just allowed nature to take its course. Mm -hmm. So let me in the fucking house. Perfect. (laughs) Spot on. Terrifying. He's so creepy in that thing. I I love it. I love fear. It's, it's, it's kind of schlocky, but like whatever, like, I, I love I love it and he and he's good in it. He plays a good psycho. He might have wanted to like gone down that route a few more times in, with some of his film choices. When he slings Alyssa Milano over his shoulder, mm-hmm. gives her that crack on the ass, and mm-hmm. they walk, and he put you. Oh my god, it's on. Yeah, Amy Brenneman in there is almost. He's super seductive in that. Mm-hmm. There's a moment or two in there where you think he's probably a move or word away from getting her in the sack too. He's really good in that yeah. film, and it's super creepy for a B movie. Mm-hmm. Fair, a B movie. Yeah, really good B movie. Yeah. Good choices. Yeah, man. Excellent. Yeah, that's Mark Wahlberg. We could also do a list of his three worst performances, and that would be pretty long and interesting as well, yeah? Planet of the Apes, The Happening, uh, the happening Transformers, yep. The Last Night. Yep. <laughs> yeah, look, I just did it. There's a few. <laughs> it's over. You shot the cask already. Uh, excellent. We're going to come to another actor again for our nightcap, and I can't wait to talk about him. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Excellent. Well, let's get this started with our uh, review breakdown of Boogie Nights. You want five or ten? If you just want to see me jack off, it's 10. But if you just want to look at it, it's only five. You guys pay to watch it, do you? Yeah. You already done it tonight? A couple times. Then you can do it again. If you want, if you got 10 bucks. My name is Jack. Eddie. Eddie Adams. Eddie Adams from Toys. Yep. Jack Warner, filmmaker. Really? Yeah. I make it. Adult films, exotic pictures. I know who you are. I read about you in a magazine. 
Inside Amber, Amanda's right. You made those, right? Right. Those are great. So now you know I'm not full of doggy doo doo. <laughs> yeah. Want to come back to the table and, uh, you know, have a drink? Uh, I'd love to, but I gotta work. You have to work, get money, you know, pay the rent. Well, yeah, I mean, no, I, I need money, but I don't pay rent. I still live at home. How old are you, Eddie? 17. Eddie, he's young, but let's start at the beginning, Matt. Let's start with the opening of Boogie Nights, which I think is just an amazing, just one shot through this club. Luis Guzman, he just <laughs> straight off of coming on the Carlitos way. I was say playing the same role in Carlitos way, almost playing the same character, but I I, I love him just the same. Mm-hmm. Um, as we kind of you know, it establishes everything so great. Uh, just this this club, and it kind of slowly just introduces all the main characters that we're going to be spending a lot of time with: Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, Roller Girl. Um, I think John C. Riley as well mm-hmm. is, is is in the club too, but you know three, four minutes to just kind of establish the world, the scene, the soundtrack, the vibe. It's late 70s. Was it like 77, 78? Mm-hmm. I think 77 because Star Wars had just come out. <laughs> so they're going to talk about that later. Uh, but I think it's a terrific introduction to the world, these characters, and then through uh, <clears throat> Jack and uh, and Dirk's first introduction of this talent that he has, that he's cut rumor of, cut window of, of like, I got to go check out this kid, see, see see what he's got. And he's already talking about it. Like, you know, he's paying people to like, just come take a look at this thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's a terrific introduction to to these characters. What do you think? I agree with you. And I love the time frame. Mm-hmm. We've talked about American Hustle on the film a little bit and how that's set around the same time, but that chooses to just air on the side of cleavage. Mm-hmm. Which fine, whatever. That's how he wants to do it. Speaking of David O. Russell. Right. Yeah. I love the way that the costuming and the look in this film is done. 77 to 82 is an interesting period because there is a marked difference Mm -hmm. in fashion at that time. Yeah. But they do a great job of butterfly collars and long hair or long feathered hair and platform shoes and leisure suits and plenty of polyester. And you know what? They all look great. Mm Mm-hmm. And the tone fits. That looks, I don't know what 1977 club life was like. I was four. But it has to be that. Oh, it looks like that, yeah. So what we also get in the opening is an important piece on this. There's not an active, and before we go any further, what we should say is if Rye Smile is a family endeavor, which I find hard to believe, but maybe it is, this probably isn't the week for that. <laughs> Because we're going to get in pretty deep on some rather salacious material. Is that fair? Well, I know we have the disclaimer at the our, beginning. We but have the disclaimer. The podcast carries the explicit tag every week because, you know, we drink alcohol. We There is foul language from time to time. But you're right. Probably no, no week more than ever. Yeah. Pop on E.T. because it's not the week Pop to do this with ET, the fam. Yeah. <laughs> you're missing us. Go put on E.T. E.T.'s nice little Shantate. Yeah. All right. So now that we've checked that uh, guilt box, mm-hmm. okay, we're set. Um. There's not an active antagonist in this film. Mm -mm. This is a character study and an ensemble piece with all of the characters, and that's a big task Mm because you have to meet all these people. I believe Don Cheadle is also introduced in that bar. Oh, yeah, you're right. So you get a pretty quick snapshot of all the players. You don't know much about them other than the primary star, Eddie Adams, and the one special gift that he's been giving, Mm -hmm. which is an immense Johnson. Mm -hmm. And this is a high school kid. Yeah. 17. Mm Mm-hmm. He's already started, I guess, an entrepreneurial endeavor, Mm -hmm. which is for the right price. I will rub one out and show you whatever you want to see. Should it be? And what's strange about this 
is there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of reluctance or awkwardness in those moments. This seems to have gone on quite a bit in Mr. Guzman's club. Well, what I want to ask too, well, so this club's in Reseda. It's right down the door from Daniel LaRusso's apartment building. Cobra Kai Dojo is just around the corner. <laughs> uh, do you think, because he lives he lives in a different in a different part of town. Yeah. And he has to take the bus and he walks uh, pretty considerably because... Uh, Jack Burt Reynolds asks him, why, why are you doing this job here when you could do it over there in your neck of the woods? It's almost like he's looking for these type of people to kind of like present himself with this opportunity. It's almost like he wants to get into this world. Now, the film never tells us that, mm-hmm. but it's just something that I kind of glean off of it that um, he's he knows what he has and he wants to put it to use. He wants to be something special. In the fight he gets with his mom later and um, maybe this is his avenue to, to make something for himself. I think that's pretty well decoded from you. Mm -hmm. The argument I think he gives Jack in that scene is he couldn't be that unloyal Mm -hmm. to Luis Guzman. I forget what his character's name is. Mm -hmm. That loyalty and friendship in this film is a big deal. So can I ask you a question? Yeah. If this had originally been cast with the person who was going to play the role of Eddie Adams, Mm -hmm. Mr. Leonardo DiCaprio, who passed to go do Titanic and then called his buddy Mark Wahlberg and said, I've got this film for you. Is this movie the same movie? Can you see Leo in this role? Think I prob- about Wolf of Wall Street. I probably could. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, I, one of the other names, that I don't know if you read this, was Joaquin Phoenix was also kind of in the running for this as well. Oh, that could have been really good. A lot of people passed on this film because of the subject material. Mistake. because Because of porn and the porn industry, and they didn't want to be, a, and that was kind of a big thing with Burt Reynolds after the, he made the movie. But I can kind of see Leo doing it. Um but yeah, it kind of fits Mark Wahlberg. I mean, you almost have to be a little smarmy to like play this character. And I think what made me really like this rewatch of Boogie Nights this time compared to probably the first time that I saw it was I really like in film, and you said it good, there's no active antagonist. It's character study. It's an ensemble piece. It's about family. But I love like rags to riches back down to rags stories. Like right. that's Wolf of Wall Street. That's Citizen uh, Kane. That's Goodfellas. It's the Godfather. I yeah. mean, I like people that like build themselves up and then just ego destroys them. I love those types of stories. We're Perfect. gonna talk about that next week too. Yeah, we are. Uh so that really worked this time for me. And I think having Mark Wahlberg play him and being supported by literally one of the best supporting casts you could ever put on screen. I mean everyone puts in all their equal weight. We forgot to talk about William H. Macy, like Miss mm-hmm. <laughs> impish William H. Macy, who just like is just so emasculated in this film because his wife, real porn star, Nina Hartley takes anybody that's willing at any party in the public in on his, the driveway in his own bed. Yeah, exactly. I was like, and he's just, and until he can't take it anymore. And I, no, I, I love his moment too. Yeah. Uh, I think this is just a great story, but I like Mark Wahlberg in this role because we get to see him, you know, rise up through his own prowess and then get destroyed by the same prowess too. It's, it's, it's really well structured. When you have an ensemble piece, it's been a while since we've done pure ensemble piece, I guess maybe hangover ish. Mm. Can you think of one? I don't off the top of my head. I can't, it's only 140 episodes. Can you just decode that real quick for me? Avengers Endgame is a bit of an ensemble piece. Okay. That's fair. All right. I'll give you that one. But not not quite like like this. You have a big task in front of you, and mm-hmm. that's number one, to make sure that the characters that you're going to present are interesting enough that when it gets to their moment and their scene, the movie doesn't lag. And for me, this time through, mm-hmm. I stopped at about 30 minutes and actually pulled out a, like a notepad and a piece of paper, mm-hmm. and I made a tick mark 
each time a new scene began that was cut, go to something new. Mm -hmm. And if that scene worked, I underlined it, the tick mark. And if it didn't, I X'd it. By the time this was done, did you know there was not a single X on a scene? There's not a bad scene in this film because the characters are always and constantly engaged in really interesting scenarios yeah they 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 propel each scene just propels it to the to the next one let's talk about some of these characters and we'll jump back into the story because i think they're so interesting let's talk about burt reynolds jack horner yeah the director proprietor uh the paternal figure of this family right uh looking always looking for talent always trying to you know make a buck make him on the cheap uh I love Burt Reynolds in this in this film. I don't know if he loved making the film, and he had a lot of issues with Paul Thomas Anderson that to the point where they there was some fisticuffs involved. And we'll talk a little bit more about Burt Reynolds uh, later. But it, it can only be him. You know what I mean? Sure. Like it's uh, you almost need that gruffness to kind of to be that. And then he's warm and cuddly, like when when the, he needs to when he needs to be for his for his uh, his cod his children, so to speak. I don't think he's an asshole to anyone except the roller girl limo scene to any in this movie at all. Mm-hmm. That scene where he sees Eddie before he's going to rename himself as Dirk Diggler, but he sees Eddie in the the the, the what uh, dishwasher room in mm-hmm. that club. There's a business element that he's trying to get to because there's maybe there's something special in his pants that's dying to get out, and Burt Reynolds as Jack Horner is dying to release the beast, mm-hmm. but. When he brings them into the fold, he brings them into a fold and not, dare I say, manipulative, because he's mostly not. Mm -hmm. It's more, like you said, paternal. Yeah. He genuinely cares for these people. He puts them up. He houses them. Um, I mean, maybe he doesn't have the most stable business, and maybe there's too many drugs there. So that's part of what makes him maybe not a great father figure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But compared to what we see Eddie's home life like. And his mother is a raging bitch, but his father is carpet, man. Yeah, just nondescript. Walked just, on yeah. constantly. Yeah. Won't even stand up to her. So much so that when we see the first skirmish between Eddie and his mother, dad shows up and you have the sound. None of this is yours. This, you leave here. You leave with what you've got. Nothing, nothing. You understand me? It's him sitting on the bed there. that's happening dad's just sitting on the bed in the bedroom just being like oh gosh they're going at it again but i'm just gonna stay here like he has not an active role in like this aspect of you know raising a child and you know what male and eddie's life would never let that happen Mm -hmm. yeah jack (laughs) so i have a question for you okay i'm glad that you chose that sound Mm -hmm. that's a kind of a rough scene i mean he slams his mom up against the wall too at the end yeah yeah you made i don't know if it was on mic or off mic posed a question last week that was sort of the opus for idea on the flight. Mm. And that was, is Mark Wahlberg a good actor? Mm. 
in that scene with the sound, give me your take on what you feel about that belief or contention or theory you have. Oh, interesting. Uh, it mostly works for me. Uh, when he, he almost gets a little too whiny, and we talked about this in The Happening, where he's just like, somebody give me a second, give me a second, somebody give me a goddamn mm-hmm. second. Mm-hmm. It gets a little insufferable for me. Um, in this, though, in the heat, the, the way the scene's presented and, like, parental fights like are always pretty rough on screen Mm -hmm. because it reminds you of those times that you like maybe headed out with your parents too over something stupid most likely yes uh so in the heat of the moment this scene works for me but like when he gets to that pantameter and it's like it almost starts to lose it for me really a little bit uh but it's not enough to kill it i i still think he gives a pretty worthy performance in this film um but with him, like you almost have to kind of reel that in so it doesn't get so ridiculous. And it's something he's done before in like especially those Transformers films and like films where just like he just shows up and he's kind of like I think like playing himself. Like where I yeah. just don't buy it at all. Um but here no, like I think the the stakes of the scene make this work for me. So material helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael Bay wasn't like I really need you to kill it in this Transformers film for yeah. me. The part that sells it for me in that is when he's crying with his mother and screaming, there's that glob of saliva that drips Mm -hmm. off of his mouth. And Mm -hmm. you can tell that he is sold out to at least what he thinks it's going to be or what he would think a 17-year-old angsty young man in that terrible argument where your mother is calling you stupid and Mm -hmm. you're too stupid to even know better. Mm Mm-hmm. He's got to be 25, 26 at this point, right? Yeah, at sure. least. And so, he's and he's pretty thin in this film compared right. to like we talked about Fear, which was the year before. He's pretty well built in that film. Like he's considerably skinnier in this one. Yeah. So I don't know what that has to deal with anything. No, it's no, just, it's he, just an observation. <laughs> no, I think you're talking about things that we have with conversations a lot. So let me give you another example of the body dysmorphia that characters go through okay. in order to make film. Mm-hmm. Castaway. Philadelphia story. Yeah. Now that's, or not Philadelphia story, but Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Different, yeah. hugely different It'd film there. Very different movies. <laughs> the fighter. Mm-hmm. Christian Bale. Yep. He's at least given a pretty sincere effort about the pieces that need to be in place in order for the audience to believe it. And to further that, I don't know what movie he's making now. Mm-hmm. But oh, it's Uncharted. Homeboy is jacked right now. Yeah, Uncharted. Have you seen him? Yeah. He is huge Well, again. he has an... He's ins- getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning to train again. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, his insane daily schedule, like, he wakes up, like, at 2, works out, and, like, he's, like, doing... He's done so much by the time I wake up that I was just, like, why even bother? <laughs> so I want to say one thing, because... And this is off task, but just for a second. Okay. We need to raise it up, because mm-hmm. Uncharted has been in Devo hell for a decade plus. Yeah. And if he's getting ready, this seems to be that it's going to happen. Yeah. So I, th- I feel wow. like it might be almost finished, actually. And he's been in and out of that role no less than five times. Yeah, he was in the lead role at one point with David O. Russell was going to make right. it, too. So that, like, when that film comes out, we're going to cover it because the stories on the road to get there are probably going to be better than the movie. <laughs> don't quote me on this because I don't have exact proof on the date. But, you know, the first time I heard him mention to do an Uncharted film uh, was when Eva Longoria Parker was still being discussed to play Wonder Woman. Oh, wow. And then she gave up that role to Megan Fox for about five minutes. We're going back a ways. It's been a while. Yeah, that game came out in... 2000? 2000. Uh, not that long. Uh, that that far back. Like 2009, 2008. Like, it's, it's been a while. So, 
Okay, that's a long tangent on his acting prowess. I don't think I'm as cool on him as you are, but I will acknowledge that if he does not have good material and someone who's capable behind this uh, camera directing him, it can go south. Well, this is a terrific script. I know a lot of people wanted probably pa- pass on this film because of the subject material, but as an actor, Eddie Adams, Dirk Diggler presents everything you would want to play in a character. Right. I mean, like it's a it's a great character to play. You're just thrust into this world. So let's kind of get into the into the weeds here. So he's kind of thrust into this this world. His mom throws him out of the house, or he just leaves willingly, mm-hmm. and he goes to Jack. I mean, Jack's uh, you know opened his arms to him already. They already did a test scene with Roller Girl. That scene that scene's great too. Um, I love the song that they pick when they have sex. It's uh, I got a brand new pair. I got a brand new key, which was used to death in a commercial about a few years back. I don't know if you remember that, but Roller Girl's a high school student, and in that scene, we recognize. Well, she can't even take like pass a uh, answer a question on a test, and she already realizes. Well, I know what I'm good at, and yep. I might as well find an industry for that. So yeah. these people don't have like a place in like the what I call the real world, Mm-mm. the world we occupy. So they got to like make do, they got to make a living. They got to, you know, find a way. And, you know, Jack's uh, enterprise has presented that to him. It's not until we get to his house in the party scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in the entire film. Mm-hmm. So much good music, especially uh, Spill the Wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kiss that. I love that song. I love War. It's one of my favorite bands. Mm. Well, you, you know me. I like I like, I like like horns in my, in, my, in my rock bands. Yep. But this introduces everyone else. Let's talk about the next character. We'll kind of just get through the rest of them. Um, John C. Riley, uh, Reed Rothschild. Reed Rothschild. Hey, you ever go to Vince's out here? Oh, no. I would have seen you. I'm there every day. I've always wanted to work out at Vince's. Cool, here. Taste that. Oh, rock and roll, right? Hey, did you ever see that movie Star Wars? Oh, about four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Exactly like him. What do you bench? You tell first. I asked you first. Same time. Cool. Are you ready? Ready. One, One, two, two, three. three. You didn't say anything. Neither did you. (laughs) I love this scene because you just see a bromance just birth, (laughs) like instantly. And... He, uh, Reed John C. Riley, who's great in this film too, is like trying to size him up and be like, who is this clown who's like trying to make movies with, like I am right now? And he's so goofy in this thing. Like it's hard to picture. John C. Riley's a porn star. Uh, but they just hit it off so well. And then like you just see that develop throughout this film in some not so great ways, but then some other great ways in the Brock Landers film series. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but what do you think of John C. Riley? This is pretty young for him too. Perfect and the perfect running mate for what will soon be Dirk Diggler. Uh-huh. Uh, so as this little flirtatious bit begins and he kind of gets a crush on him, and I don't mean in a way where he's trying to bet him, but the the bromance, as you described earlier, begins. They're both mm-hmm. about the same speed for each other, and that's perfect. He's a great comedic foil for him. Oh, he's perfect. Mm-hmm. And everything that... Dirk aspires to, or that Dirk is able to emulate, Reed aspires to, but in and his own, instead of being sort of the sycophantic, we're friends, aren't we? We're friends, we're friends, aren't we? Huh, Steve? We're Mm -hmm. friends, we're friends, we're Mm -hmm. friends, right? Mm -hmm. They give him a really cool path as well through Mm -hmm. magic and the dark forces that he uses according to to Don Cheadle. 
but uh, he's as about polar opposite looking as Dirk Diggler in this film mm-hmm. as Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger and twins. Yeah, there you go. And that's why it works. It's mm-hmm. an odd couple. Let's talk about Julianne Moore. Amber that's, Waves, right? Yes. Yes. Almost kind of like the motherly figure of this little little family, so to speak. So uh, with what you've set up so far, mm-hmm. we have dad. Mm-hmm. We have, I kind of feel like older brother, but maybe just brother. Yeah. We have sister, roller girl. Yeah. Which is kind of weird because you just bagged your sister yeah. to get a job. <laughs> weird. But okay. And mom. Yeah. I just want to say one thing before I steal that. Okay. You've again created a family, which you mm-hmm. spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. and that's what this film is. This is a domestic family film. Oh, we take the ride with them through this whole we film. Sure do. Okay, yeah. keep going. She's really good in this too, and I told you, Mike, again, trying to figure out you know what, things to kind of talk about for our questions. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big Julianne Moore fan. I don't know what it is exactly, but it works in this film for me considerably. Uh, she's really uh, likable. She's got a lot of flaws, which I think was what makes her interesting. I mean, she's a mother, failed mother in her own right with these custody battles with her uh, husband and uh, just drugged out. I mean, she introduces son to to the drugs, to cocaine, which is, leads to his super downfall. Mm-hmm. But then it's weird, too, that we get a real edible thing here because the first like sex scene that they film is with her, too. Yeah, Dirk gives him or Eddie gives himself the name of Dirk in the hot tub with Reed and and um, Jack, mm-hmm. and I love the way they describe that too. Oh, and the lights. Yeah, I want my name to be in blue with purple neon around it, and it's so sharp and it cuts so that the sign blows up and catches on fire. That is such a as much as I care about Dirk Diggler and like like him as a character, he is a moron. Mm-hmm. The guy's as dumb as yeah, a post. Yeah, he's got he's. <laughs> And I hope you have the bit where they do their music because you can hear from the lyrics in that. I don't, but you're right. It's terrible. Feel, 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 feel my oh, no, I have a portion of that. It's when they're arguing about how they need to take the tapes to make money and make the taste so of wheat. <laughs> the Those are terrible lyrics. Okay, but anyway. You've heard the tapes themselves. They speak for themselves. This is going to sell, but we, yeah. <laughs> Read. All right, where was I? Um... I don't even remember. Oh, Amber Waves, what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, do you like her in this film? Yeah, she's Love I, her in this I, film. I think she's really good. Yeah, that's a question that um, I don't know if there's anyone in this movie that I don't like. I think everybody's good. really good. Good point. Um, but, okay, so you brought up the bit where Dirk Diggler's first appearance on screen is making it on a desk with Amber. Mm-hmm. What's weird is as he is making with her, she is thinking of him as her son, mm-hmm. <laughs> which clearly lies in an Oedipal or an incestual space. That's not fun to watch on screen. And it's kind of gross and not even kind of gross. It's gross. Mm -hmm. And somehow it's not in this. Mm -hmm. He's trying to make it sexy and not fuck her, but make love to her. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to mother Mm -hmm. him through the scene. So there's really two competing narratives. And the only other time that I can think that, a sex scene has worked this well. Zach and Mary. You got it. It's that scene. <laughs> it's just like that scene. I, I so want to do that movie one day because the song that oh, we, they use in that is live and it's only like 25 seconds that they made for that film. As a Gen Xer, that's a big band in my yeah. past. But right, you start out to make this this porno and in Zach and Mary, that turns into, I actually really love the hell out of you. Yeah. And in this, this turns into... I want to be really good at what I'm doing as a porn star. And she's, I really want to be a good mother to somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's yeah. loaded, isn't it? Big time. Keep going. Excellent. Okay, three more. What car- do you think about that? Oh no, yeah, I think that's that's it is entirely loaded scene because okay, it's a little graphic, but there's these long drawn out conversations about like when the man finishes, like where's it going to go? Yeah. And they literally have in that scene. They're having such a good time doing it. She's like, she's like. You don't have to pull out. Come inside me. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think the general idea is on her chest, right? Yes, it's if, if the you, cum you, shot. Yeah, you got you got the porn is just like it's not romantic at all. It's aggressive. It's like crazy positions and everything. And then like the way this scene is shot, it's just like it's like two people making love. It's crazy. She's into him. Yeah, and he's into her. And I'm not trying to be punny there, but no. he's into her. And in that this is my moment to prove to my mother. Mm-hmm. That I'm more than what she said, and I'm going to prove it by banging out this chick who thinks that she's my mother, and then she responds, like you said, with that big moment. Yeah. Just come inside me. Just stay. <laughs> Sigmund Freud, he's in the corner over there. Holy smokes. We need you to dissect that one. <laughs> so can I ask you, I've always had this question. Okay. Are, there's a couple parts of this. Mm-hmm. Are Jack and Amber a couple? I don't, I don't know. I, I tried to think a lot about these people. I was like, I know they're like doing like scenes together, but I don't know if they're like any of them are like together. I never got that impression. So she's not with him. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. If she was, mm-hmm. and there's, I think there's a slight case to be made that maybe she is, mm-hmm. you know, but maybe not too. This could be a really good opportunity for him to see that his woman mm-hmm. is really into this other guy mm-hmm. in a way that is completely misconstrued by him. Sure. He's thinking it's a uh, attraction. There might be a piece of that with her, but mostly it's maternal mm-hmm. inklings. Mm-hmm. And to sit there and watch that yeah. and watch this relationship develop between the two of them, Man, mm-hmm. that's pretty loaded. They choose not to go there because, like you said, they don't ever fully tell the audience Jack and Amber are a couple. Um, I had a different take because I kind of thought they were, even though it's not. there's no evidence really to prove that other than what you want to take from the moments that they're together and yeah. the way he speaks about her. But, yeah, regardless, that's a very dysfunctional family unit yeah. that Jack is making money on by filming. Three more characters we have to talk about, and then we'll go to the the New Year's scene because that's like kind of the turning point of the film. Yeah, uh, seventy back into nineteen eighty, mm-hmm. perfect transition too. Uh, Don Cheadle. Maybe this is an indictment on Marvel Studios and the types of fi- entertaining films that they make. I don't know if Don Cheadle gets like time to shine in those films because he's playing second fiddle because he's War Machine and we're here for Iron Man. But, like, the material in those films doesn't, like, really glean for him to, like, have his moment. Don Cheadle's amazing in this movie. Yep. Uh, and it, re- it really harkens back to, like, I've seen him be, like, really good, like, whether it's the Oceans films or, you know, just a few other things. He plays uh, Buck, right? Mm-hmm. Ex-porn star. I don't think he's actively making it. Do you kind of get that that case? He's trying to make like a legitimate living now selling stereos. Yeah. Remember we had that conversation? When did we? Oh, and the Poulter. Hey, people, sign up for the Patreon. Rice Smile Films at Patreon.com. Matt and I went on a whole tangent about the 80s and hi-fi and how like people were obsessed about their sound setups. They just had to hear that like snare hit that they could never hear. And unless you had the most up-to-date system, you weren't going to hear that. That's Buck's living. He knows how to set that up. Boy, the way he does it, though, is interesting. He oh, dresses up as a cowboy and mm-hmm. plays very, very, 
country western twangy music to this guy that comes in trying to sell him on the bass mm-hmm. when it's just pedal steel. Yep. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, he's an interesting cat. He's like the cousin that comes like for like all the big family gatherings. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's his family dynamic. Mm-hmm. I love him in this film, and I like how he essentially loses his girl he's with to another 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 man but then kind of finds his own calling and that scene in the donut shop Matt oh my god like it's it's so intense that pool party that you spoke about is where you start to see the first fractures i think between him and uh, Becky Barnett played by capably by Nicole Ari Parker mm-hmm. gorgeous woman mm-hmm. and they're having it out mm-hmm. if i'm not mistaken He's dressed up as, does he have like a red cowboy shirt on with white piping? Yeah. And she's like, that look isn't working. And he pretty much says, well, your look isn't working either. And they're at, they're at odds. Well, then at the next party, he sh- or at the New Year's party, he shows up looking like Stevie Wonder pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> Crossed with Liberace. So he's eventually going to meet uh, Jesse Vincent, mm-hmm. played by Meloria Walters, mm-hmm. who is a staple in a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's films. And she's pretty good in this. But, yeah, he's misplaced, and what we've come to find out is the reason that he has that hi-fi job is not because he's a great salesman, is because the guy that runs the hi-fi shop sees him as an actor and thought that'd bring some really nice trim in so the guy that owns a shop could get laid because he's got this porn actor in there. There you go. This is a pretty consistent theme, too. Mm -hmm. There's lots of people in this film that are using others to get where they need to be, Mm -hmm. except in the space of Jack. Yeah. And the moment that Jack tries to do that and we introduce the other characters where we're going to get to that part that you talk start talking about around New Year's. Yeah. But yeah, no. To John, to Don Cheadle, I didn't see his Miles Davis film, did you? Yeah. He was good. Was it good? Mm-hmm. You're great. He's been good in everything I've ever seen him. Mm-hmm. Except mm-hmm. he hasn't quite landed that blockbuster smash. He's he's the William H. Macy capable sidekick supporting character that's never been appreciated, but just not William H. Macy. Perfect segue, because now we have to talk about William H. Macy. See how uh, I did that? Oh, I love it We've so much. This a while. Oh, gosh. I This movie made me realize how much I really like William H. Macy, yeah. like whether it's Fargo or Shameless. Like, like, wouldn't you want to see William H. Macy do like a John Wick-style action movie? Because like he's so shrimpish mm-hmm. in everything he's in. Mm-hmm. I would just love to see this guy just like snapping necks left and right. Like it would be awesome. so different yeah. and it'd be like, it wouldn't compute in your brain, but it could work. Mm-hmm. Look, if Bob Odenkirk is killing it on Mr. Nobody or whatever that yeah, is right why not? now, why not? Yes, why not? You're right. Okay. So what's his, he's like script, right? Screenwriter, right? Script yeah. supervisor. Assistant director. Yeah. Yeah. And his wife is like banging all these other guys and like everyone, like everyone just like realizes how pathetic he is. You know what I mean? And he realizes he's pathetic. Like he like goes and sleeps on the couch at his own house. This is the kind of life he leads, but he's going to have like the kind of the big moment. It's literally the turning point. And the one miss in that sequence, we're going to get to it is that you kind of wish that happened like right at new year's. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. From 79 to 80. Boom. 1980. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's fair, but he's good. He's still good in this, in this film. Last but not least, we're going to talk about him later. Philip Seymour Hoffman is Scotty J. He strolls into this film in his short shorts oh and his gosh. tank top. That's none of it fits. This is what I appreciate about Philip Seymour Hoffman is like, if it was ever just like a weight thing, he was like, so not shameless about it. He was just like such the professional actor, like willing to sell the character. 
He's gay, and the second he sees Dirk, he's just like infatu- in love, infatuated with him to the point. Now, let's get to New Year's because that's like a like a long scene. It's like twenty minutes probably. He tries to go and kiss Dirk, and he's like, he's like, dude, I'm not into you like that, and like he's like, I'm sorry, and he tries to roll it back, and he has the best moment. Where he's like, you stupid fucking idiot, stupid fucking idiot. <laughs> but he he's great in this, and this is pretty pretty early on for him in his career too. This is like right the same year as Le- or the year before Lebowski. He had just done Twister. Uh, he's still kind of he's all these people: Heather Graham, Wahlberg, uh, Donchi. Like all this is they're all fresh. Julianne Moore. Mm-hmm. Now they're like. Very well-renowned stars. Burt Reynolds is obviously the established actor Lead dog, sure. in this film. Yeah. I love that Scotty buys the knockoff version of Dirk's orange mm-hmm. Corvette with like an orange Z or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. He is trying so hard mm-hmm. to meet approval from Dirk because he has, like you said, he's got it really bad for him. But he, if William H. Macy is considered kind of a laugh on set, Scotty J's even more so. Do you kind of wish, not that this is a miss because the sequence is easily my favorite part in the entire film, the last, uh, the drug bit sequence. Oh, the Molina bit? Yeah. Okay. Because uh, we introduced uh, Thomas Jane's character. Uh, is he also a porno actor too? No, he works, he's a bouncer at Party Boys, which is a strip club. Okay. He's really killing it. <laughs> Do you kind of wish that was maybe part of the Philip Seymour Hoffman character in his kind of like trying too hard to get Dirk's approval? Hey, Dirk, I'm going to get you drugs. Like, oh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get us money type of thing. Like if that was his character instead of the Thomas Jane character and it was just a continuation of the need for the approval from Dirk, so to speak. Yeah, it changes that Thomas Jane character. Not that the film needs to go that no, way, no. but it, sure, it I could see that. maybe makes that a little more interesting between the two of them. Scotty seems really young and pretty innocent to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, you, yeah, sure. That could totally work. And he's like the grip too, right? Yeah. The sound guy like holds the boom mic. Yeah. Can we talk about that just real quick? And then we'll talk about the, the parties that, that new year's scene, their production set is pretty low budget. <laughs> yeah. And I meant to talk about this when you brought up Jack earlier, mm-hmm. Jack's biggest goal is, to make movies, but even in the conversations that he's having with uh, Ricky Jay, who is, I guess, the editor. Ricky Jay's a mu- magician. Musician. Magician, right? Magician yeah. or musician. Ricky Jay showed up in, uh, as a pseudo-Bond villain in Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he really wants to make a real film. And mm-hmm. he, there's some conversations they have early on before Dirk shows up and takes on the role of Brock Landers to create this oh Bond-like God. series. Oh, my God that they're really trying to make a film. Like after mm-hmm. they have that sequence with Amber and Dirk the first time, they have a discussion. And I think it's William H. Macy that says we didn't get the money shot. And do you want to go to stock footage? And I believe Jack says no. He's trying to move out of that salacious space where you're disregarded and it's just trashy adult cinema as much as he can be the professional with the limited means that he has provided by the character, which we haven't got to, which is named the Colonel. And this is the financier who has got an issue with young children. That's going to come to light later. Mm -hmm. He's trying to be professional. Yeah. And the road to professional is by making as close to a legitimate film Mm -hmm. 
But to say they had B film levels of budgetary means at their disposal would be a huge understatement. Overstatement. I think they're like D level. It's like they're like in a garage. They're like in a garage. (laughs) Yeah. We'll write the script and then what are you going to do? You're going to show up, you're going to have sex, then you're going to leave, then she's going to go to the bathroom and she's going to like, it's, he's trying and he sees with Dirk a potential to make money. And also as we get a little bit later, maybe some legitimacy. So back to what you said, this duct tape and prayer version of set materials to make a legitimate film he's still trying well let's talk about this too because they introduced philip baker hall's character later who kind of comes in he's like well i'm gonna butter up my ass and this and that i'm a simple man call me old-fashioned but i like a lollipop in my mouth and butter in my ass (laughs) such a good what such a good line oh okay mr old-fashioned you provincial clown what but he's he's already moving into the 80s and understands the advent Mm -hmm. of home video and I think this is interesting in talking about the porn genre and how, like, mm-hmm. they would make one of these films and they have a marquee. It's like Dirk Diggler and Roller Girl in this. People would go see these movies in these adult film theaters. Like, it was kind of like a big deal back. And I, I can't, like, you shook your head. And I know what you're saying. It's like, I can't imagine watching this with other people. <laughs> Gross. Gross. Why is the floor so sticky? Yeah. 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 Ugh. But I think this is a legitimate thing that the film tackles in that, like, when you have the ability... And now it's even easier. I mean, you just pull it up on your phone now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but home video, like, killed this industry. Like, now you could watch it in the privacy of your own home. You don't have to go out to these theaters. And it's kind of a big thing for Jack. You say he wants to go legitimate, make a film on film, shot on film, which is a big argument with directors versus digital right now. Uh, but the industry's changing. It's moving to shoot it just on home video. Look, man, this is taken from the annals of the Wild Bunch. Mm-hmm. As an era closes and a new one begins, where does that leave you? Mm-hmm. He has tried for a long time to make a legitimate movie. And as we move to video, the character played by Philip Baker Hall, uh, Floyd Gondolo, Gondoli, I believe his name is. Mm-hmm. He basically says it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. And, and it is. that is a deal breaker for Jack because he in his eyes as a quote unquote filmmaker is trying to find enough funds to make a legitimate movie. Mm -hmm. And as this guy comes in in 1980 and pitches him with, okay, so Horner Industries has two important financiers, the Colonel who we've already spoken of. And that's, that's the money man, very little money, but that's the money man. Mm -hmm. And then on the night of 1980 at this new year's Eve party, we get the Philip Baker Hall character, Floyd. And so now we have two financiers, but Floyd seems to have a higher position than the colonel. Mm -hmm. So he almost has to defer to Floyd's wishes, and he doesn't want any piece of that. This is as big a slap in the face to Jack Horner and what his aspirations are as can be imagined. Mm Mm-hmm. And they have it out pretty good on New Year's Eve. And he says, I'm not going to do this. Bullshit. We're not going this way. How dare you come into my house on New Year's Eve? I'm a filmmaker. Go fuck yourself. All these other, you know, kind of things like this, which Burt Reynolds is so good at doing. But it doesn't change anything, does it? The needle doesn't move. Yeah. Because they're still going to go to video. And Floyd was sitting there in the room with Colonel after Burt Reynolds, Jack Horner walks out. It's like, I don't know what the resistance is, essentially. This is going to happen. I have a hilarious story to tell you. I just thought of it just now, and I can't believe I didn't mention this when we covered this movie, but my first encounter with pornography, Matt, was uh, I was at my um, 
my cousin's house and like, I was just like, I was like, like hanging out the day there and I was looking for like, like a videotape to watch. And it was like, a, it was like a tape that like looked like it had been like recorded, but it said Rocky two on it. So I was like, Oh, Rocky. I was like, I'm going to watch Rocky two. I love Rocky. Mm-hmm. And I put it on and it was a porn. Where was this at? At my cousin's house. Oh wow! And they, they were hiding it in like the, like the rock in like the, like the VHS stash. I should have like, hit it in the Rocky Five case. No one would have looked in there. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> but I put it in. I was like, I was like, what? What is this? Because I was like, I was like getting to that age. I was like, I kind of was aware of like what this kind of was, but like I had never like seen it like this before. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is this? This is this isn't Rocky Two. <laughs> That's awesome. But I like I got like duped and then I get like got like exposed. Like I think like way too way, way too early. And then like when I got to middle school, like I heard people like talking about it and like people were like, Yeah, I was watching this thing on like Cinemax. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Soft, soft, soft core. <laughs> exactly. So let me ask you, when you burned through the first scene on that, were you like, This isn't Rocky, and then you turned it off and turned it back on, or how did that play out? I think I was curious. I think curiosity got the best of me. So I put it back on for a little bit, but then I had to be careful. I was like, if I get busted with this, I'm in trouble. So, so you want to hear mine? <laughs> what was that? Do you want to hear mine? Yeah. It's not a tape, but it's uh, material. Okay. My buddy that I've spoken about a lot on this film, my early, his parents had the membership at Smith's and that's where he rented a lot of movies we shouldn't have rented. We were at a newsstand one day and it just so happened that speaking to Philip Seymour Hoffman and Lester Bangs Mm. specifically right next to cream magazine Mm. was the porn section. Mm. So we spent a lot of time looking at the rock magazines and somehow we got this idea that the best way to get one of those home would be to buy cream magazine with the porn magazine stuffed into it in the middle. Yes. Oh, wow. It fit like a square peg in a round <laughs> hole. It wasn't even close. Shutting out the sides. Yeah, it was not. No, no way. Yeah. So we go up to the register and just quaking. And we were fortunate enough to get like an early 20s female cashier. Okay. And I remember she grabbed that magazine for me and looked at me like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I just like looked at her and she rang it up. Oh, my God. And gave me a little smile and said, that's going to be 325 and handed me the magazine and kind of gave me the nod as we walked out. So whoever that gal was to her <laughs> and we, so this story gets even crazier. So of course we take it home and it wasn't like a playboy. I mm-hmm. mean, it was like raunch. It mm-hmm. was like mm-hmm. trash. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, sixth grade boys, I was a lot of truth in those pages. So after about 10 minutes, it got old and whatever. He kept that magazine. Okay. And about a year and a half later, he gave it to one of our classmates at school. (laughs) This dipshit takes it on the bus. Oh, no. And opens it, brings it out. Of course, it gets confiscated because the bus driver hears about it. It gets given to the principal. Oh, no. This story gets even crazier. Oh, my God. And so he gets called in the principal's office, and that little rat bastard rats us out. So my buddy comes to me in sixth period and he's like, tells the teacher, can I talk to Matt for a minute? So we go outside and he's like, Hey man, we're in trouble. I'm like, that's maybe seventh grade now. Yeah. What do you mean we're in trouble? This guy, I'm not going to say this guy's name because yeah. he's a fairly prominent um, businessman here in town yeah. <laughs> currently. Yeah. And he's been a friend of mine forever, but yeah. he's like, I gave the magazine to guy X. I'm like, what magazine? He said the magazine cherry was the name of it. I believe cherry. Mm-hmm. 
it got confiscated and he ratted us out. So we're going to be called into the principal. And I was like, Oh my God, what did you like? I'm pissed. Like, yeah. What are you doing? What did you, you get me idiot? roped into? Yeah. Here's what gets even crazier. <laughs> I go into the office. This is like 1984 or five. So it's a little bit different. Okay. Very pro male assistant principal. Mr. Copeland, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. reads me the riot act. And he says to me, this is completely inappropriate. We tell him the story and how we got it. And he goes, <laughs> I'm going to give you 24 hours to tell your parents before I do. <sighs> so I go home. Oh my God. And one thing about my mother is if I was ever going to get in trouble, it was way better if it came from me than if it came from someone else. Sure. We kind of had made that agreement. Okay. Brother, I had to spill the beans. Oh, goodness. And I had a couple of those posters in my room that Dirk Diggler or Eddie Adams had in his room, like the Cheryl Teagues poster. Bruce Lee. <laughs> no, Bruce Lee. It was just like girls in like no, workout I, gear or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And so my punishment was actually pretty safe. Okay. I think I got grounded for a week. And then she made me take down those posters. <sighs> and that bastard principal yeah. never called my mom. Oh. We lost the magazine. I lost my posters. I got grounded for a week. He played a, a psychological mind game with you guys. You got you guys to confess. And after he gave us that, because he, he met with me and then he met with my buddy, the next day I asked my buddy, did you go home and tell your parents? And he's like, oh, hell no. And I'm like, you're just going to roll the dice, huh? He's like, yeah, I'm going to roll the dice. I told him. <laughs> the kid that had the magazine didn't get suspended. The, my other buddy didn't have to tell his parent. <sighs> what a raw deal. There's a lot of lessons to be learned in that from everyone that's listening. Hopefully your kids aren't because we talked about that early, but that's the story of my first foray into the pornographic industry. That story's amazing. (laughs) Oh my God. I can't believe we've never talked. Well, why are you and I talking about porn stories? I never told you about the Rocky two VHS tape. Yeah. Uh, That was amazing. Oh, I think to that, to to being young, naive, not knowing what we're getting into. And now we're talking about boogie nights. (laughs) All Let's right. go to um, 1980. All right. It's jealousy. It's deceitfulness. It's vindictiveness. It's all of that stuff, you know? But, I mean, God, what can you expect when you're on top, you know? It's like Napoleon, when he was the king, you know, people were just constantly trying to conquer him. Love it. You know, in the Roman Empire. So it's re- history repeating itself all over again. To all the critics out there, you know, I know they're going to be reviewing this, and I know they're going to try to knock me. I just want them to know. Is it okay if I say this into camera, Amber? Okay. I only am who I am because I was born that way. I have a gift, and I am trying to not be selfish about it, but to use it. Okay? And if you want to knock me for that, it's your own problem. Okay? Jealousy will get you nowhere. The wheels are already starting to fall off the machine. I mean... That damn Roman Empire trying to take over Napoleon. Yeah, his facts are just all over the place. Yeah. Uh, but we've seen the influence of drugs. We've seen, you know, kind of just like he's arisen to a status and he's got his own pad and his car that he loves and this and that, but it's all falling apart now Mm. because now when we go to set, now it's instead of reading the script to prepare is doing a line of cocaine, like with Reed and, and Thomas Jane, who's just like supplying him. Well, and the moment you brought it up earlier, but we have to talk about it is he's introduced to cocaine by his mother on set, Amber waves. Yeah. She brings him in and makes him do a, you know, a couple lines mm-hmm. tells him to appreciate the drip. I know nothing about cocaine. Yeah. And in 1980, 
things begin to change dramatically for Dirk. Absolutely. And then I think kind of almost like a threat to him as like this new guy that they hire, almost to be like Dirk 2.0. And what's crazy about this is prior to hiring Dirk 2.0, he is the leading man in the industry. He is getting... Winning all the awards. All the awards at the AVN, before it was AVN, all that stuff. He's He is recognized as the prominent Johnson in the porn industry in Reseda. Can I, uh, so I read, I did some research. I did a lot of research on this movie because I, I, I didn't, I didn't know a lot, a lot about, you know, the production and the, when they filmed those award scenes, the, it was the, the girl that plays, um, uh, Don Cheadle's, uh, Melora mm-hmm. Walters like went up and she accepted her award and she says, or she gave the award to Dirk. You're like, I can't wait to work with this guy and I can't wait to suck his this and this and, and, and have him in my this and all the extras, like a third of them like walked off set. Like when, really? when she like went off cuff like that. Yeah. And so they lost a lot of time and had to replace them and get the them. extras were so offended. Yeah. They walked, give me a break. Yeah. They just took off. So like, I thought that was pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah. Well, good for her. <laughs> yeah. And so she just like, she just started improvising and I don't think that made it into the movie, but yeah, that was, that was something else. That's good. But then it gets to kind of this breaking point, and we've talked about this family dynamic and everyone's roles and how they they fit, and it just all comes to a head, and it just all blows up. Uh, this is this is such a great clip, so we're gonna, we're going to listen for here for a bit, and then we'll we'll talk about it. You're not even an actor, man. You got no business being here. You're not a I'm fucking not actor. Yes, I am. No, no, no. I'm an actor, man. I'm a real fucking shut actor. Up. What? I, I, oh, oh, shut shut up, man. I want you to go in there. I want you to cool off, okay? Just cool off, and we'll come back to shoot the scene. I said I'm ready to shoot. Not now. I'm not going to tell you again, Jack. I'm not going to shoot you in the state you're in. What do you mean state? State, state of California? I know where the fuck I am, Jack. Jesus Christ, you've been up for two days. No, I haven't been up for two days. Nevertheless, you look like you haven't been slept. So I ain't going to shoot you this way because you don't look good. You know what? You don't tell me anything, okay? Really? You're not the boss of me. Yes, I am. Oh, you're the king, huh? Yes! Don't oh, oh, fucking touch me, man! No, no, no! You shut up, too! You're not the mother of me, and you're not my boss! You're not my mother! You're not my fucking mom! Hey, man. No, 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 no! No, no, no! No, no! I'm ready to shoot the scene. I want to shoot the scene. I'm fine. I want you out of here. Look, it's over, okay? I'm done. Listen now, to ready me. to shoot? I want you. Don't you fucking call me a kid. What? Oh, fuck you. You want to see me kick some ass? I don't fucking karate. You want to fucking get <laughs> oh, out of here? Come on. Come on. You are fired. You're fired, you fucking bitch. You're fired. You're fired. No, no, no. You know what? I'm the biggest star here, man. That's the way it is. I want to fuck. It's my big dick. So everybody get ready fucking now. You know what? Yeah, I don't need this shit. You don't fuck you, fuck you, fuck all of you. You're not my boss. You're not the king of me. I am the fucking king of Dirk. You're nothing without me, Jack. You're fucking nothing. Fuck this, Dirk. man. I don't need Dirk. this shit. Dirk, wait. Oh, fuck I'm this, so man. sorry, Jack. I'm so sorry. I'm going to take care of this. I'm gonna... mm. Good job, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's kind of right about Jack. He's kind of nothing without him. He, he's and, right. But Dirk's nothing without Jack either. Right. It goes both ways. Yes. The best part of this sequence, though, is when they cut to Wahlberg going off like crazy. Philip Seymour Hoffman's in the background going like. Holding himself. Like a kid watching his parents fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well it's, said. It's so, it's so well done. Like, this is such a great sequence. But it's like literally the fracturing of this family because 
Dirk decides to go off to like, I'm going to go be like a muse, a, a pop star now. And he sucks, which is surprising. I would, cause like, I mean, Marky Mark and the funky bunch and, and whatnot, good vibrations. I mean, that's, it's an all right song, but like, he must have intentionally made it really bad to sound in this movie because it's atrocious. Oh, his vocals are terrible and the lyrics are stupid. It's so terrible. <laughs> so he leaves the porn industry to start on his music career with, I guess, capable enough guitarist Reed Rothschild as his um, partner in crime. And they get in the studio and they cut this music and the guy that's the studio coordinator is just laughing inside over how bad this is. Feel, 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 feel my heat. Yeah. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. And he's singing it bad on purpose. Yeah. Here's the thing. Okay. This movie takes a really interesting world and presents everyday problems inside that world, which is such a simple formula. Family skirmishes, blow-ups, addiction issues, monetary issues, brotherhood or brotherhood rivalry. Yeah. All of those things are just domestic issues that we all have some familiarity with on some level. Mm-hmm. So that's how this movie is so grounded and relatable to all of us because the porn industry isn't, thank God. Mm-hmm. So as much as that is what the movie's about, it could easily be titled instead of Boogie Nights, Family Days. Yeah. And it's so smartly crafted because there's a place of entry in this that's, you know, it's interesting when he's with Amber and he's with Roller Girl and the things that Roller Girl says and what Meloria Walter says when she accepts the award. Like, oh, that's so far out. Yeah. But that's like 20% of the actual screen time. The rest of it is just the dialogue between the people. Mm -hmm. And what I like about this 1980s section is just how downward spiral everyone, everyone really goes and, you know, trying to do a pop record and mom and roller go like, I'm your mother. Right. And they're, they're doing cocaine now. And Jack is copious amounts of cocaine. Yeah. And uh, Thomas Jane's now well into the picture and like bringing them like all their drugs and everything. And everyone is just, they're just splintering at the seams here. Um, I promised you that clip of, of, of Reed uh, uh, pleading for his uh, EP. Pay the price of the demo tapes unless we take the demo tapes to the record company and get paid. Hello, exactly. That's not an MP. That's a YP. Your problem. Come up with the money and I'll give you the tapes. That's it. Okay. All right, now you're talking about my head, all right? I don't know this industry jargon, YP, MP, whatever, okay? All I know is that I cannot get a record contract. We cannot get a record contract unless I take these tapes. And granted, the, the tapes themselves are your... Are your, are, are your that you own them, okay? But the magic that is on the tapes, that fucking heart and soul that we put into those tapes, that is ours, and you don't own that. Now I need to take that magic and get it to the, to the record company, okay? And they're waiting for us. We're supposed to be there half hour ago. We look like assholes right now, man. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, you do. And these two guys, they're so such buffoons, buffoons in the industry. They don't even, this guy's talking about like, all of like the proper terminology and he's like it's a catch-22 and Wahlberg's like 
the fuck is a catch 22 and he's like and he starts doing his karate thing and everything <laughs> and it's just so these guys are like they're everyone is so out of control at this point yeah. uh and no one has any direction and i kind of like that and it all kind of leads to and this is interesting because i respect how where the film goes to to get to this point uh, I don't know if I particularly like these next scenes coming up because of how dark the film gets. Uh, and maybe it's the music that was played. And it's like, I think it's like two notes. It's like, boom, do, do, do. But it's threefold. It's Dirk uh, trying to make some cash, uh, who's jerking it for a guy that just wants to watch in a car. And then he gets beat up by a bunch of guys and they call him a uh, fag and everything around the corner. And then Roller Girl picking up some guy that was in her high school class that couldn't, uh, where she couldn't complete the test, uh, to do some off the cuff, just pick up some rando on the street to to bang it out in the back of the limo. This is Jack's new uh, endeavor. And then it's Don Cheadle in the, the donut shop with his pregnant wife to get a, to get some snacks for his pregnant wife. After they'd just been turned down for a loan. At the bank loan, a, yes, exactly, yeah. Because he was a porno actor. And that's the only reason he's not getting it, which is pretty ridiculous on, on top of that i mean his idea is moderately decent uh the film gets pretty dark here for i think a good 10 12 ish minutes uh and to the point and the, the real difficult one for me is the roller girl bit because mm-hmm. they, they let that guy have it i don't know how that guy's still alive when he takes like five kicks to the head with some roller skates oh my god <laughs> if you believe in the second act reversal this is done for all of the parties you just mentioned it's per definition, it is. And I forgot Julianne Moore, like, losing custody to her kid. Okay. Yeah. Right. So if you believe in that screenwriting-wise, then after the second act reversal, we'll find our characters in a worse place than they were than when the film began. Mm-hmm. And in each one of those cases, they are. Eddie, Dirk Diggler, is still jerking it for money. Mm-hmm. But it's not even in the sanctuary of an enclosed environment. It's some seedy alley that leads to him getting his ass kicked on the street. Mm-hmm. Julianne Moore, who was without her son, Amber Waves, who was at, without her son, is further. Because at least that guy would call her on the phone on occasion, even though Luis Guzman didn't give her the message properly because he used the son used the mom's real name instead of Amber's. That's who calls? Yes. Oh, man. I never That's who picked, calls on the phone. I never picked that up. And the, at the party. And he asked for her by her name, which is Maggie. Oh. And like, there's no Maggie here. I don't know why. They don't even know her as Maggie. You go to Roller Girl... And the guy that they kick the shit out of is the guy that chased her out of her high school exam because he turns around and uh, mimics like um, oral sex to her Mm -hmm. and she flips out and leaves. Jack has been reduced to videotaping in the set, Mm -hmm. which is his car with his prize winning gal, Roller Girl. Amber is, but really it's Roller Girl for this. Mm -hmm. With some street kid, and he's so bad at sex that they have to stop cutting. That never happens from what I've come to understand in the porn industry, the little research I've done. Mm -hmm. They never cut. Mm -hmm. They don't cut. They just keep going. Yeah. Because there's some footage in there they can use in some way. Like, they just don't cut. Yeah. There's no double takes. Mm -hmm. They stop, and then that guy pops off and says, you're going to leave him with blue balls, essentially, blah, 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 whatever. And they kick the shit but out But not of before him. he tells Jack, your films suck anyway. So everyone, and Don Cheadle, who has just been denied a loan for Buck's Superstore sound system, which is going to be 
you know, his hi-fi dealership, his hi-fi store. Each one of these people is in a worse place. Mm -hmm. And so per the writing of this, it follows that beat to the letter. And what I think is impressive is it only follows the beat to the letter, usually with the main character who is Dirk, Mm -hmm. but it does it for all of them. Everybody. Yeah. Roller girls reduced to not being fuckable enough because they can't film it Mm -hmm. because this guy's so bad at it. And then turns into almost a murderess. I mean, she clocks this guy in the face with her skates. I don't know how he's alive. (laughs) If he is, if he even is. Yeah. So Dirk's beat to shit. Mm Mm-hmm. Jack's films suck, and the fans of his are even admitting as much. Mm-hmm. Don Cheadle got turned down for a loan, and who am I missing? The rest, it's all fallen. Everything's fallen apart. Oh, William and William H. Macy's dead. Oh, he's, he's been dead for yeah, <laughs> shot himself. This half this film, but the donut shop bit, I think, is the one that uh, sticks with me the most because turned down. Let's kind of just wrap up the night. What do you want? What are you craving? This and that, and you know, we go to this. Uh, armed robbery of this donut shop and this scene's nuts i mean there's a guy sitting at uh in a booth who pulls a gun on the armed assailant kills him that guy kills him but then the other the the, the guy in the booth kills the cashier yeah. and Cheadle's just covered in blood but what he needed at all this time was cash and there's like 10 five yeah, grand six grand on the floor in a little paper baggie and he takes it I mean, like in that instance, like you can't blame him after all the shit that he's been through, but it's like a light at the end of the tunnel for like at least his character. But I think all the characters, they're all going to figure it out eventually, but not before we get to, and I had to, I had to pull it up because I couldn't remember what they, they called it. It's a long way down. One, one last thing. thing. Yeah. This is my favorite part of the movie. Mm-hmm. So this is like how far down have these characters gone they're so addicted to drugs that like like we're gonna go screw this like like this drug dealer guy alfred molina who what's his name raul or while you're looking that up what i will tell you is his name is so nondescript and he is such a new player in the industry that when i went back and read ebert's review on this Mm -hmm. he didn't even give him screen credit really he just mentioned the drug dealing guy in the building he raul or rahad jackson rehad jackson that's right to the point where i could almost say they could spin off that character paul thomas anderson could like make a movie about him oh sure because what the hell is going on in him he's got like an, him and cosmo an asian kid like just light and fire crack like what's going he barred him from brian singer yeah but you, you probably did but did you notice he has a rick springfield shirt on mm-hmm. oh my god okay so they're gonna go screw this drug dealer because they're so hard up on cash and 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 they need that to get drugs because they're all so addicted at this point can we break down the plan though that thomas jane hatches go ahead. yeah here's their plan everybody mm-hmm. We're going to go visit this multi-millionaire drug dealer, Rehod Jackson, and their plan to screw him over is to take half a kilo mm-hmm. of Coke, but it won't be Coke, it'll be baking soda, mm-hmm. and we'll give him this fake cocaine, we'll get the five Gs, and then we'll split. Yeah. That's their plan. Yeah. That's and already not a good plan. Stupid plan, because yeah. of course he's going to taste it and, mm-hmm. and test it. Yeah. And immediately we know that it's not going to work out, number one, because when they show up at Rehod Jackson's house, yeah. the biggest, baddest mofo opens the door mm-hmm. and he's packing. Yeah. First of all, this is like the prowess of Paul Thomas Anderson as a filmmaker. He sets the scene. 
so efficiently here. I mean, it's a couch with a living room. Sit at the couch while we test the product. He's blasting 80s jams. He's already got Sister Christian churning out. But then his like little Asian whatever <laughs> is like busting firecrackers here. So like, are like, are those gunshots? Are they firecrackers? Like these guys are on edge. If they weren't already on edge, they're freaking out. And it's just it, the suspense that's built through this scene of how ridiculous it is with Alpha Merlina in his speedo underwear singing these songs, smoking crack cocaine. Playing baseball. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the suspense in the scene is palpable. Oh, my God. So as this deal's about to go down, he stops mid-transaction for the bump, 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 bump. You got it? Okay. Hey, boys, that's right. that half key right there. <laughs> right. And that is some quality shit. If you want it, oh, don't worry about it. I mean, go ahead. You know, you no, 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 wait, 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 wait. He is laughing because it's so absurd. This whole scene is so surreal. Yeah. Man, it's unsettling and we're not even there, huh? Oh, it's so good. And this has to be one of Thomas Jane's like first like big roles too. Like what had he done prior to this? Nothing, but he's going to be coming up on the Patreon pretty soon. <laughs> Deep Blue Sea. Do you ever wonder if this moment in this film was mm-hmm. the inspiration for Hung? Mm-hmm. Did you ever watch Hung? Mm-hmm. That was a great job. God, it was good. Mm-hmm. Maybe. It sort of fits, doesn't it? Yeah. If you all haven't ever seen or heard it's or probably watched on, Hung. It's probably on HBO Max. It's got to be. Mm-hmm. The first two seasons are really good. It goes off the rails a bit in three because I don't think they ever intended it to go past two and they lost their way, but... Those first two seasons are amazing. Mm-hmm. It fits in this sort of genre that we're kind of playing with. It's not porn, but Thomas Jane is a gigolo. Mm-hmm. Check it out. It's really good. Good recommendation. Yeah, this scene, yeah, you're right. If you're already uncomfortable, like we haven't even like made the, they're not even testing it yet. Who the hell let someone shoot firecrackers off in their house? I would be so, if this was me, I would never be in a situation like this personally, but I would be freaking out. I mean, the, the sound, like how could you relax? First of all, Night Ranger's blast, and I already established that I hate them. And then this kid's blowing firecrackers over here. This guy's got a gun. We have fake product, like Jesus Christ. And then it's just, you have no, you can do nothing but laugh because he just like goes up and like lights up the crack pipe, and he's like waiting to test, and he's like, hey, do you want to see this? I want to like pretend to shoot myself. And they're like, oh, my God, don't do that. And then he starts singing Jesse's Girl, and I'm just losing it at this point. It's like... We're gonna find a Yeah. He's so good. He's so re- what's the, so what's the story? Oh, is that the story? Did you tell the story? Yeah, that was it. So when Roger Ebert watched this and spoke specifically about this scene in his review, he brought up this character that he barely named as Rehad Jackson and gave no screen title to. And that was Alfred Molina. Oh, what a, a great entrance into screen. That's life. a shame. Cause when I when I talk to people about Boogie Night, this is the scene that like always comes up oh yeah this this, is yeah this is like like what a great way to end the film 
but it all comes to a head. I mean, like they, they, they test the thing or no, Thomas Jane pulls a sweet, like, like a fast one on them. He's like, there's a, there's money in here and we're going to take that as well. It's under goddamn money in the goddamn sink that's behind the bed in the bedrooms. Like he's wrote, he's Mm -hmm. saying it. And the other two, uh, Reed and and Dirk are like, what are you doing? Let's get out of here. Like we're already uncomfortable. Let's leave. And, but no, like not, not, it's, it had to end like this, just guns, guns flying, bullets flying, and it turns into a disaster. <laughs> Help me remember if we've ever talked about writing in the gap on this before. Have we ever talked about mm-hmm. writing in the gap? No. Let's talk about the gap here for a minute. Okay. So I need you all that are listening to go through an exercise with me. I want you to make a fist and I want you to get ready to knock on whatever closest apparatus is, is nearby table, chair. But before you do it, I want you to think about what that's going to feel like and sound like. So like for me on this table, I know it's going to be this. Okay, that's me knocking on there. When you write in the gap, Mm -hmm. you take the moment before that occurs and you completely twist it into something unexpected. So take this and imagine me knocking on that and... It feels like a marshmallow and a choir of angels sing a note on each of those thumps. That's writing in the gap. Mm-hmm. So taking the expectations, bastardizing those, and giving the audience or viewer or listener or entertained something unexpected. If we're going to show up for this drug deal, we already expect this to go south because that plan is so hockneyed and stupid. There's no way it's going to work. And they're so strung out, they wouldn't be able to do anything that remotely well there's that weird scene too where mark Wahlberg just like staring at him for yeah. like almost like a minute zoned out and it's just like like and i'm like is he gonna kill it like what's he doing there like yeah you're right they're like all messed up so we approach mm-hmm. the guy has a gun and all of that seems to fit and then you add cosmo with the firecrackers you had that awesome explanation on how it's important to make a mixtape which welcome to the anthem of everybody in 1982 mm-hmm. everybody was doing that and then you take what happens, which you know is going to be disastrous. If you didn't know, look at the car that Mark Wahlberg shows up in. His vet is banged and the hood's fucked up and mm-hmm. it's dented. Like the car's like yeah. things have gone to shit, Jesse. Yep. And what happens in this scene is completely unexpected mm-hmm. insofar as what the audience is surmising that's coming. That is such an art. And that is the key to keeping entertained listeners, viewers, watchers, readers going is giving them something unexpected. So what I'm saying is I'm acknowledging the expertise of this being gapped out, but frankly, all of the scenes on my little checklist that I made are written in the gap. Yeah, We want gapped action in film. Mm -hmm. I don't want what I know that's going to happen, what I surmise that's going to occur to come as I expected it, because that's just delivering on what I expected. We don't want that. Exactly. This scene that you bring up, that you tell people about, mm-hmm. it's already rife with conflict, and then it's gapped out conflict on top of it. Yeah, it's masterfully done, masterpiece scene. It's really well done. I mean, this is like when PTA is at the top of his game. Like he get he turns out stuff like this, and he'll have a few sequences like this in next week's film as well. Bowling alley. Yeah. Uh, where you just like you're looking for the conflict, the tension, and you just don't know how it's gonna happen with the ball. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, that's like you don't know what's gonna happen in that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the same thing here. Of course, it all goes to shit. Thomas Jane takes a shotgun blast to the chest. They killed the, the bodyguard, but then Reed and Dirk are just hightailing it just to save their own skin. And 
Alvar Molina just blasting shotgun blasts in the middle of the street like it's no big deal. In his kimono, silk robe, and banana hammock with the shotgun what, in the middle ma- of the fucking That's street. what makes it so good. His costume is amazing. Like, right. It's so ridiculous. And it's the mustache. It's the whole look. Mm-hmm. The whole vibe that he gives off. Like... It's awesome. You know what it made me think of, Matt? Uh, this whole film, actually. I wonder if PTA, much like Tarantino, was influenced by Elmore Leonard because this feels mm. like a, a Leonard-like oh, yeah. type of scenario. It had to have played. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, sure. But what's what's really nice about this scene is, like, I think it's, like, Dirk's, like, coherence from his drug trip where he's like, I got to go make amends now. And, like, it's him going to going to Jack and kind of sharing that embrace and kind of making amends at least going to apologize to dad, so to speak. Jack doesn't mess around either. Mm -hmm. Welcomes him immediately with a warm embrace. And we have navigated those waters. I'm glad that there's not some long drawn out. Let's bear our sins. Yeah. Let's just get on with it. Cause we really are supposed to be together. And then we get kind of a nice montage to wrap up the film where, Mm -hmm. Everything was so dark like 30 minutes ago and we can finally, you know, start making some some changes and making some progress on some of our endeavors, you know, open up the 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 rec- uh, the hi-fi store, getting into magic and then starting production on a new on a new film here and trying to get everyone back on track and like the family at least for now, at least for this moment is fixed, so to speak. What do you think of this kind of last last scene of the film? A good way to end it, you give the snapshot of all the people that we've spent the last two hours with, and you see how it's righted itself. Mm-hmm. And in the most crazy, screwed up, unhealthy environment, there is this overriding belief that the power of this makeshift family is going to see them through the day. The baby swimming in the pool. What does Jack say? Mm-hmm. The baby's not going to piss in the pool, <laughs> yeah, which of course that dad and that family would say. <laughs> yes. And the linchpin of the whole thing. And this is really, I think, a quizzical moment. Is this Dirk's movie or is this Jack's movie? Because Jack, we see it all through Jack's eyes at the end up to the reveal of the prosthetic, which is coming here in just a minute. Mm-hmm. But all of the pieces are back in place and the ringleader or the puzzle master, if you will, mm-hmm. is Jack because he tells Roller Girl to go clean her room. Mm-hmm. He goes and kisses his wife, Amber, and tells her she's the foxiest bitch he's ever laid his eyes on or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) strange compliment I think that's what he says, yeah. Yeah. We get Buck and um, Meloria Waters, Jesse's kids swimming in the pool, Mm -hmm. which is why he went to get the donuts at that moment because his wife was pregnant. That was Mm -hmm. all the pieces are back in place. Yeah. And then the business is also back in place, isn't it? Because we get the final scene, which is... Dirk in front of his mirror. Well, it's the final reveal, and I'm kind of glad that the film goes here and that this is the final scene because they've been alluding to this thing the entire film, this just, like, legendary member that Dirk is just, like, encompassing in his pants. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this thing. And, you know, some of this film was kind of based off of, you know, the life of John Holmes. uh, And um, this was something that he would kind of do, too, which would be kind of, like, lock himself in a room and, like, psych himself out before, like, he filmed his scene. So, uh it's kind of, they've established this, I think, three or four times prior as like him looking in a mirror, reading his lines, and then doing like a little karate thing or some bullshit. Mm-hmm. But not before he like whips it out, shows the audience finally, and then puts it back, does a little karate, and then like now we're good, we're good to go do this scene. The way that's revealed is literally like deholstered member. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just like let your zipper and let it fall out. Mm-hmm. 
it is I got to pull it out from the recesses of the bottom of my knee and reveal this. (laughs) (laughs) And it lives up to the legend. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly, that's a prosthetic. And Mark Wahlberg has said as much. But what Mark Wahlberg said a lot about this movie in recent. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. Yeah. He's walked back. What's a masterpiece film due to fatherhood and their beliefs would have some religious connotations and is sort he of a, like a born again Christian a bit. Yeah. I don't know if I'm imprinting on that or if I've read that, <laughs> no, but that yeah. kind of feels about right. So he mostly disavows his work in this film, which I think is a huge mistake. It's fiction, man. Yeah, it's fiction. Mm-hmm. And because it's not fiction, it doesn't have to be any more real in your life than you want to make it be. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that Mark Mark Wahlberg and the Funky Bunch and that young version of his life probably had some Dirk Diggler-like moments. Oh, absolutely. Entourage. The show. Right. It's him. So there you go. You watch that more than me. But I'm sure there... I love that show. Yeah. I'm sure that there was a moment or two where he wrote it like he stole it, drove it like he stole it, maybe wrote it like he stole it too. Yeah. But he owes a lot to this film. I mean, it essentially... He owes took, everything to this film. It took, I mean, fear is one thing, but like this like kind of like gave him like legitimate like role access, like Three Kings, perfect, like films like that. So... Uh, I'm surprised that didn't make your list, by the way. Three Kings? Neither one of our lists. That movie's, that movie's pretty good. Uh, yeah, talk so... Talk about a combo uh, of Mark Wahlberg, Ice Cube, and George Clooney. <laughs> you can walk away from it, mm-hmm. and that's fine if you want to. But to just wash your hands and pretend like it didn't exist is not just such a slam on fantastic work in a fictional setting. Mark, it's fictional. And I'm a Mark Wahlberg fan. I admit it. Mm -hmm. Because of this film. Yeah. Well, Burt Reynolds kind of did the same thing. I mean, after the film, he fired his agent, kind of like distanced himself from promotional. After being nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Well, that was the thing. He won the Golden Globe. And then they said that, like, because... For those of you that don't know, the Oscars are actually this weekend. Uh, the Oscars are all about promotions, mm-hmm. uh, campaigning, and it's kind of like its own weird little business all into of itself. And if you don't play, you don't win. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Reynolds distanced himself from the production and was so adamant about, you know, I'm ashamed that I was in this film. Like it, they, they said, the rumor is that it actually probably cost him the award that he would have won it. Uh, had he not done that. Which would have been a great capstone on an interesting career. Yeah. Because for a long time before this film came out, yeah. no one gave an even moment or thoughts notice to Burt well, Reynolds. Like Sharky's Machine was 20 years before this, is it Jesse. The, is it the same year? Was he nominated the same year as Robert Forrester and uh, Jackie Brown? Yeah. Talk about two guys just being plucked from the bowels to like be given like amazing roles in some pretty good movies. Yep. Uh, so yeah, that, that kind of hurt him, but like, I think, uh, for the rest of the cast, I mean, they all kind of came in like really like shot off after that, you know, Heather Graham, Julianne Moore, Philip Seymour Hoffman, William H. Well, William H. Macy had just done Fargo. Well, Heather Graham's career is one that takes a terrible turn. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's outside of her body, if there's not a lot of casting potential and she's clearly willing and capable to show what she's got. And there's a lot of rumors that she got into the industry with her body via mm-hmm. James Woods. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to the story that many actresses can tell. <laughs> not, not right or wrong. I'm just, it's a fact. Yeah, no, no, I know. Yeah. But what does she do after this? I know. I mean, she, she made that uh, strange film with uh, Ray Fiennes, I believe that was about that kind of a Rosemary's baby type thing. 
Um, what's that called? I'll look it up here in a minute. And then I don't swingers. Maybe. Are you talking about spider? No, 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 no. Swingers. I think is that's the Vince mm-hmm. Vaughn film, mm-hmm. right? Or sing, is there no singles? What does that? No swingers. swingers. Yes, no swingers. Yeah. yeah. Singles is Cameron Crow. And then I don't remember her showing up again until the hangover, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, she probably did some B list stuff that I didn't know. Seeing about. like rom-coms. I mean, she was, she was in like in one in like the early two thousands that I remember. Killing me softly. That's the name of that film. Okay. Killing me softly. But yeah, this cast is most of them in PTA. They're all going to kind of go on and do a lot of like interesting and, and pretty great things. But this is such a good way to end the movie. You know what I mean? Like, like we got to see this thing. And like, I like that they didn't like shy away from it. You know what I mean? Right. Like any other like film might have been like cut to black. And then we never get to. I don't know. That could have been pretty good, too. You know what I mean? I like, love. Oh, it's, yeah. It's just still part of the mystery. In his Miami Vice outfit. Yeah. <laughs> love it. <laughs> Stupid karate, uh, Brock Landers. Um, hang on, let me see because I did take some some notes here on the thing. Yeah, I mentioned the the Elmore Leonard bit. I thought that was interesting. This is actually an expansion on a mockumentary short that PTA made in 1988 called Boogie Nights or the Dirk Diggler story. And I think a lot of you know directors' first things are kind of birthed from like things that they made prior, and they like always loved it, but like didn't have the ability to like expand on it. And then it becomes something more later on. So uh, I like that he um, had the willingness to come back to that. $15 million budget, $43 million gross. is pretty decent for a, a film a film like this. Uh, Oscar nominations for Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress for Julianne Moore, and then Burt Reynolds, which we already established, probably he, he ruined that for himself. Uh, Burt Reynolds had a hard time working with Anderson, fired his agent after the film. Uh Tried to punch the uh, PTA one day and actually got into a scuffle with Thomas Jane. I don't know what that's about, but I would be curious to know uh, what that was all, what that involved. Like, you kind of get, like, he could kind of rub someone the wrong way. You know what I mean? Burt Reynolds runs pretty hot. Yeah. And if you doubt that, search it when you get done with this today. Mm-hmm. Everybody look at Burt Reynolds with Jay Leno and the water bit. Just look up water dumping with Burt Reynolds. And that's a crazy sequence that happened on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. It's crazy. And uh, one last nugget, uh, PTA spent a lot of time with actual adult film actor Ron Jeremy uh, to kind of just help research just the world of like, you know, pornography and like what that involves. And I I feel like they nailed that, especially era defined 70s, 80s. I mean, they did a good job. They're so tongue in cheek with it at times. It's just it's you can you you have to laugh at like how if you're not laughing at Brock Landers and the the private dick that you've always been chest looking, Rockwell oh my god how do you not like think that's hilarious I mean it's it's too funny we got to make sure we plug the tea public this week too oh absolutely go get yourself your own Brock Landers t-shirt I'll be honest I already bought one so next <laughs> week I'm gonna have it I brought the I bought the Brock Landers investigative agency t-shirt it's awesome oh that's, that's great yeah. public's really good this week with the stuff that's coming up everybody take yeah, a look yeah go check it out some stuff from that and there will be blood but Matt what's your favorite tasting note of boogie nights Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I'll let you think. I've talked about mine at nauseum. It's the last uh, Alfred Molina bit yeah. drug. It's just so well edited, acted, written, sound designed. It's just it's a perfect sequence. Like in film schools, I mean, I know they teach Citizen Kane to death, but man, they should put pop this scene on there and just show them this is how you kind of make a movie too. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's that's mine too. But let me. See if I can sift through what's the close second to give you another option. 
Um, I think Dirk Diggler's first appearance on screen is a pretty monumental moment in this film as well. Mm. The pool party is in consideration as well because that's very good. But actually, you know what? Neither one of those is going to be it. You know what it's going to be? It's going to be the tied on, no cut, moving with the camera as William H. Macy at New Year's Eve sees his wife with his, you know, with John number 65 of the day buried in her. And we stay on him as he leaves the house to his car to get the gun, to walk back in, and then kill all of them and himself. That's probably it. That's so good. It's so well The shot. camera work in that is really weird. Well, the really camera work in this whole movie is amazing. Because there's like at least four or five like one shots yep. where we just follow people. And they're all really well done. But that's probably the best one. So I'm going to go there. There's a lot, but truthfully, it's the Alfred Molina scene. Great choices. What's the... moment of this film i mean there's a lot to pick from (laughs) the awkwardness of scotty trying to walk back his attempted kiss on dirk diggler Mm. oh it's hard to watch yeah there's a bit of a mess up in that film too because you can see the cinematographer's camera i'm sorry the cinematographer's shadow on oh really the door panel and rear view mirror on the side like the side view mirror Mm of Scotty's car. But regardless, it's that whole sequence where he's begging Dirk to come see his car and it's so pathetic. Yeah. And then he makes his move and then Dirk spurns that move and Scotty begs to get another kiss to which Dirk is no. And then Scotty tries to bail his own water with, I'm just drunk. I don't know what I'm doing. And then that part that you, I'm an idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. That is hard to watch. Mine's actually going to be there's a moment we didn't talk about, but when the Colonel James mm. shows up with his cadre of new talent, uh, and the first one is like, is there cocaine at this party? And then she like overdoses in the bedroom. And this guy's like, Oh, that was like the second time that's happened to me this week. And like, she's like bleeding from the mouth. Like, and they're like, okay, we'll handle it. Take her out the back. And they're like super calm about it. Yeah. It, like it happens all the time. Yeah. And they just like usher her out the back like it's no big deal. When this girl probably died. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, that's the oh my god moment for me. It just it's establishes the the the, the shystiness and the just scumminess of what this world is. And PTA just does such a good job at that. Good choice. Mm-hmm. Who's the master distiller on Boogie Nights? I'm gonna give it to Mark Wahlberg. There's a lot of choices here. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to give it to Mark Wahlberg, which we don't ever let the flight question be the movie that we're doing that day. Yeah. But he is the answer to that, number one, with a bullet. Um, yeah, he would make my list as well. For yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it to him in this. I think he's fantastic. Good choice. Thanks. I'm going to give it to Paul Thomas Anderson this week. Uh, this uh, screenplay is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really reminds me a lot of you know the genius of early Quentin Tarantino And, you know, giving us a snapshot into a world that almost everyone isn't familiar with. And I think that's why it works so well. We talk a lot about, you know, interesting settings and environments to place characters in and then let them do their thing. Man, the world of pornography, I don't think anyone had ever really attempted something like this prior because of how taboo it is. But he slays it. All the characters are amazing. All the sequences that we've discussed on this podcast are amazing. This is an expert writing job for him, and I think it's his second movie, if I'm not mistaken. It's awesome. Because I think Hard Eight's number one, right? 
That's a good movie too. Uh, but this, I think the screenplay, the direction's really good, but the uh, the screenplay's great. I mean, it's it's uh, it should be taught in film classes yeah. on how to write characters, how to you know make an environment unique. Uh, it's a it's really good. Mm-hmm. How are you gonna rate and grade Boogie Nights? We have Rock Gut, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Where are you lining up on this one? Top Shelf. This is top ten of all time for me. This is one of the greatest films that's ever been created. Um. It's up there with The Hustler and The Shawshank and all of those other ones that I mentioned. This is in there. I don't know where. It's probably just outside the top five, but barely. This is a masterpiece, and I mean this, perfect movie. There's not a bad scene, and I didn't... This is not just self-serving with my little stupid list that I made as I was watching. Oh, yeah. But that was just further proof on a movie that I've seen 15 times, and it gets better every time I watch it. Like, it comes on, and I finish watching it. This is not one that I feel like, okay, well... Let me grab something and grind through. This is a good film. This The Revenant is a good film. I don't ever want to sit through it again. Sure, yeah. I'll sit through this at any point, the whole film, whatever's left when I turn yeah, it on. Yeah, there's good and like non-rewatchability value, and then there's good and rewatchability. And that takes a lot of consideration into my into my rating. Oh, we did a whole shot on the DC shot. I talked a lot about like how I could rewatch a lot of a lot of films. I feel the same way as you. I mean, this is it's funny. It's intense. It's suspenseful. The character stuff is good. Uh, the first time I saw this, I don't know, maybe if it just, there was so much noise about boogie nights I had heard about. And then I saw it and I was like, yeah, I I liked it, but like, I didn't like love it Uh, where I'd probably give it like a call plus like single bell rating. But, uh, this is, uh, I think maybe the third time I've seen it, uh, for this show top shelf with the bullet. Uh, It's, uh, it's amazing. It's it's really good. It's such a great... I mean, if Heart 8 is like him trying to kind of find his groove, like this is the Pulp Fiction of the PTA career for, for Paul Thomas Anderson. There's that group of people, mm-hmm. director-wise, that figure it out okay in the first film and then come across in that second one that just slayed. Yeah. Unbreakable comes to mind right mm-hmm. off the top of my head. Yeah. Nolan's second film. Insomnia. Oh, no, no, no. Memento is so, his second film. Yeah. Right. There we go. Another one. Mm-hmm. Um, Fincher. Yep. Seven. Seven. Yeah. <laughs> Alien three. <laughs> See what I mean? You got to have one to sort of figure out where to get your bearings. It's almost like one or like, okay, now I have money. I This is how you make a movie. Now two. Okay. I know how that went. Now I can tell the story I've always wanted to tell. Right. And then you just, you, you're off to the races with it. You're right. You just listed off all these people that in the 90s, like, established themselves. And you're saying he's got a gangster thing coming next? Is that what you said? No, that was David O. Russell. Oh, Russell. What's I it? actually don't know what he has in, in the pipeline right now. We'll have to look into that as we move through this cask. Mm-hmm. But it's a great second entry. Yeah, like, prior to this, I probably wouldn't have given it top shelf. But watching it this time, I was like, no, it's... it's it's Really? Huh. It's top shelf. And, yeah, especially, like, the last probably hour of the film solidified that for me so that's great yeah excellent well let's wrap this up with our nightcap So when Jeff Lynn finishes up at ELO, you know what he does? What does he do? Basically writes and produces the entire decade of the 1980s with Phil Collins. Oh, wow. Yep. 
No, I, that sometime when you get a chance to look into that. It's crazy. I will. I mean, I mean, I don't really like yellow either, <laughs> uh, but I like when films make me like songs that I don't have any business liking, and that, that's another example of it. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, we've already prefaced this earlier. We're going to talk about another actor, list off our top three favorite roles of this particular actor. Philip Seymour Hoffman, taken from us mm, way, way too soon. Way too soon. Uh, to the point when I talk about this film coming up in, in, my, in my little lineup, uh, or I just had to pause and just be like, oh, well, I'll talk about that here in a second. But top three favorite roles, Philip Seymour Hoffman. What's your number three? Number three, this shows the range of this character. Mr. Art Howe in Plan B's Moneyball mm. to play a baseball manager who gets the jargon and the gist and the jive of what it means to be baseball. Mm. I really like that movie, and he's not the best character in that. That's clearly Brad Pitt's vehicle as Billy yeah. Bean by a mile, mm-hmm. but he is the foil. Jonah Hill's really good in that too. Yeah, that movie's really good, man. Mm-hmm. If we do a sports film, that's got a sports cast oh, that has to make absolutely. it. Absolutely, he's great as the manager that's reluctant because he's trying to save his job. And um, Art has an interesting interview. If you ever get a chance to listen to anything that he's had to say outside the realm of this movie, but in real life, he's an interesting cat too. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's pretty much him. So that's the first one. Great choice. Thank you. I got to start with an honorable mention. And it's 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 part because I thought, I always felt that Philip Seymour Hoffman was able to tread two sides of of an actor spectrum where he could be super serious and like so into a character whether it's a film like Doubt or Capote. And then he could like wheel that back and do something super ridiculous. And the film I'm going to talk about, or this isn't, this is my honorable mention. It's Along Came Polly. Mm. Sydney, or, or, oh man, I don't know. I'll, I'll look up his name. I can't remember it. But when I play basketball, if I ever get to shoot hoops, like, you know, you know, you always had like, you know, like when you like go like shoot a hoop, you're just like magic or like, yeah, Jordan or like the one I always I, I have to do too. I do I do like Kobe <laughs> or I always have to do him from that film going like rain dance. <laughs> <laughs> he is so ridiculous in that thing, and I, I love that an actor could do something as cerebral as some of the films we're going to talk about and do something like that. Shows like how much fun he could have with the craft. It's uh, a good honorable mention. I didn't even think about it. Long comes Polly. Yeah, I'll have to. I can't remember his name. He's 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 a blast in that. He shards his pants in a scene in that film, and it's hilarious. Uh, number three for me, um, talk on that same spectrum. It's from Twister. It's it's the character of Dusty. I think this is probably the first time I saw him in a film, and he almost steals the movie for me. I mean, Bill Paxton, Helen Hunt, like whatever. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman is really good in that movie as like this kind of wild card storm chaser. Uh, he's just really fun in the movie. And I like when he could like, again, have fun with the character, memorable lines, a bit of a wild card at times. Um, and to couple that with some of the, the next films we're going to talk about, just see how serious he could be at times is amazing. Good choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we start going down these holes, I think I didn't think about this one. Doubt, like I didn't consider doubt. That's a good he, choice. That's a heavy movie, but he's he's incredible in that. All right, so number two, I don't know if this is his first film appearance, but it's got to be pretty close. It's Mister George Willis Jr., who is the biggest mm. prep school prick of all time. That scent of a woman. Mm, good choice. He's a fucker in that film. <laughs> But only because he's so good at it. Oh, yeah, between that and like Big Lebowski, he always mm-hmm. was like that like swarmy little snaky guy. Swarmy little smarmy little snaky guy is perfect. Yeah. So George Willis Jr. sucks in Scent of a Woman, but the performance is what makes it suck. Good choice. Number two. 
Number two for me, this is a series. I hope we get to talk about some of these films because it's a series that's like a heartbeat. It's all over the place. It's the Mission Impossible franchise. My favorite entry in the franchise is the third one, directed by J.J. Abrams, and it's because Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the bad guy, Owen Davey, in, in, in that film. The film starts out with the bullet, like picking up kind of towards the end with uh, Ethan Hunt, uh, Tom Cruise's character, all tied up, and Davey and being like, we've got to... He's like, I'm going to give you to the count of 10 or I'm going to blow your wife's brains out. And like that countdown is so, seven. you don't think I'll do it? Seven. Like, you're like, what are you going to do? Like he played such a good bad guy. And I almost kind of wish, I mean, he plays some kind of like scrupulous characters in his past, but like as a true antagonist, I feel like he could have, we could have seen a lot more for him. Like had he pursued a lot of those roles. He's so good as the bad guy in that movie. See him reimagined as Blofeld. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That'd be, oh, I always wanted to see him as the penguin. Oh yeah, and like a Batman film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he he makes he makes Mission Impossible three for me. That's Good like a, that's like a make or break part of that franchise because it totally goes this other way. When post John Woo, it was like pretty wild and out of control. Uh, when does De Palma take the reins? Is that four? Well, that's the first one. He did the first oh, that's one, right? And Woo's so two. De Palma, Woo, J.J. Abrams, wow. Jesus Christ, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah, number one. Number one. We're going to do this movie someday. Yes. You know what I'm going to go with. Here. I do. Yeah. Did you go with the same one? I did not. On purpose? Yeah, because we're also going to do this. Maybe we just do a Philip Seymour Hoffman cast and we'll just do this other one in it. Most of you are not going to know this character, but it's Andy Henson. And man, it's pretty close to the final film that he does. It may not, but it's pretty close. And the film is, I think, very poignant to where Philip Seymour Hoffman was in his life regarding drugs. The title of the film is Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. It's an Ethan Hawke, Mira Sorvino film. Oh, it's sorry. Sydney. It's not Mira Sorvino. Um, Marissa Tomei. Jesus Christ, Marissa Tomei. It's Sidney Lumet's last movie. And it's also his dad's um, film. Uh, his The guy, God, whoever plays his Oh, Albert Finney. Albert Finney's last film, too. <laughs> couple drinks in here. And everybody. Ethan Hawke's in it, too. Yeah. Good movie. It's a heist film, but it's not a heist film. Mm-hmm. And, man, this movie didn't get good publicity it didn't get good traction i never even saw a trailer until it came out and i just happened upon it before the devil knows you're dead is as good to me as this film we did today is Mm -hmm. it's an amazing movie that no one saw yeah and it's amazing because he plays ethan hawk's brother and man they're good so that's my number one and as close as it might be and i would throw you know mr lester bangs in there Mm mm-hmm I think he does a better Lester Bangs than Lester Bangs does. Sure. We've already talked about that at Almost Famous, so I kind of kicked it out. Mm-hmm. That would be my honorable mention. It's a good honorable mention. And clearly he was recognized for Capote, but that's like punching a baby to steal its rattle. So I'm not going to choose that one. Yeah, let me just say before I give my number one, he's amazing as Truman Capote. He is Truman Capote. He is. I mean, he's like, like he won the Oscar for that film, rightly so, because mm-hmm. he just chameleoned himself into that person. I'll raise you your de- before the devil knows you're dead, and I'll give you the Ides of March. Oh, and the character of Paul Zara, so good. So this is why I want to do like a Philip Seymour Hoffman cast because we could do that one, that one, and maybe Doubt or some other. Santa Woman would be pretty good actually, or Big Lebowski. We'll, we'll find a third one in there. 
another ensemble piece uh, where he could easily get lost in the star power of Clooney, Gosling, Gosling. Uh, Rosa again. Yeah, Paul Giamatti, uh, Jeffrey Wright, mm-hmm. all, like, all these people. And it's his scenes that steal the movie for me. And I don't know if you knew this, Matt. I did a deep dive on Ides of March about, about a month ago. Uh, it's based on a play called Farragut North. Yeah. Uh, in the play, he's the one that has the affair with the intern. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, for the film, they changed it to the president or elect incumbent Clooney, which rightly so that plays better filmically. Yeah. That could have been pretty interesting, though. But it doesn't kill the character. I mean, he's like almost like the, I don't want to say the moral conscience, but like he just has like such authority over his role as campaign advisor to Clooney's character. And the backstabbing, the secrets in this film, if you haven't seen Ides of March, oh my God, go turn that on right now. That movie's wild. And it's so good. Uh, like and another one that kind of just snuck through the way, maybe not as much as Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. But I just think another just good notch in his filmography. As much as I think we're easy to come up with Wahlberg's not top three. Mm-hmm. And you'd be hard pressed to find Seymour Hoffman's not top three. Yeah. The guy was really good mm-hmm. at what he did. And to him. Yeah, to him. Godspeed, amigo. Yeah. Excellent. This has been a great... I knew this was going to be a longer run because Boogie Nights is a longer movie and there's too much, so many characters to talk about. Two hours deep this week, wow. But uh, that's Boogie Nights from 1997. Sticking with Paul Thomas Anderson for next week, we are going to have... We're going to go shoot 10 years later, catch up with him a little bit more refined, a little bit more put, uh, put together. In a film that uh, you and I have spoken about a lot, but not probably to the extent we're going to do next week, 2007's There Will Be Blood. Matt, hot take. I'm going to say it right now so I don't have to say it next week. Daniel Day-Lewis's performance as Daniel Plainview in this film, I think, is the best acting performance of all time. I'm going to out-hot take your hot take. (laughs) And I'm going to argue this is the best film yeah. since 2000. Ooh. In the onset of this millennium, this is the best film that's been made. Oh, this film's on a pedestal already. I mean, goodness, uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about. But this character is so interesting. The performance is so interesting. The writing is so interesting. And the film, like, kind of overshadowed, like, in the year of... Two, there was a lot coming out that year. We'll talk about that as well. But I'm excited to revisit There Will Be Blood. I'll tell you what, if you were a Riot Nation member sitting there thinking like, God, I'm getting tired of these guys doing science fiction. Mm-hmm. We have met that need because we are getting deep into the drama. Mm-hmm. There's still two more weeks to go. Yeah. And well, then we're going to follow this cask up with musicals. Yeah, exactly. No, we're not. Well, maybe something. Uh, uh, we'll talk about it in two weeks. Yeah. So that, that May is going to be a blast. Yep. For our, it's something. It's a franchise we've wanted to talk about for a long time. It's not gapped out. That's a drum roll. Yeah. It's a tease in the industry. Day six of podcast. School. I'm so excited to talk about there. There will be blood. Uh, so you got that coming next week. Revisit that one. If you haven't seen it uh, recently and um, catch back with us up in a week uh, as we take that, that one down and talk all about that one. So that's going to be a lot of fun. We already spoke about it a little bit, but just again, shameless plug in the podcast that you all are already listening to proper. The Patreon's got some really good stuff coming up. We just did some amazing episodes First Just finished blood. first blood. We've got Deep Blue Sea coming up this uh, in the short, very, very, very short duration. Mm-hmm. Uh, finishing up the final episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, getting ready to move into another series, which we're going to start talking about here pretty soon too. 
take a look at that. Um, if you like the content here, that is more of what you already like in three different versions, including right proper, like the one we're doing now. And then secondarily, and I want to give a shout out to my partner in crime here. The Instagram is off the hook this week. Jesse did such a good job and take a look at that because all of the selections that we offer are literally two clicks away. Mm-hmm. And in there, please go to the T public page. The rye stuff is as good as it's always been, and it looks good. And I'm actually wearing one too yeah. today, so I'm sure we'll post it on the pictures. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other options that have been selected to be housed in the uh, T Public site are really, really good for this week and next. So take a look, everybody. Awesome, thank you, Matt. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. Jesse, did a good, you did a, seriously. I'm always impressed with your Instagram ability. This week was your best work. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, until then, cheers. 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 I got to get going. I'm going to go listen to Night Ranger again. <laughs> Maybe there's something in there that uh, I've been missing, but I highly doubt it. Well, if that's the case, then when you finish, can you please tell me what, what your price for flight is? <laughs> I'll raise you a Night Ranger and I'll give you a Rick Springfield. <laughs> I'll see that with your Phil Collins. That. Songs followed me my entire life. (laughs) Cheers, everyone. We'll see you next week. Everybody have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. For more Rye Smile content, go to patreon.com slash Rye Smile Films for exclusive bonus episodes, plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Boogie Nights is property of New Line Cinema, Lawrence Gordon Productions, and Goulardi Film Company. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. I am a star. I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. I am a big, bright, shining star.